Come let me drown and free I wish I could tell a story Chase away all those ghosts You got inside of you A story of heroes who fight on At any cost Of a kingdom of love To be won or lost Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are coming to you on Tuesday instead of our normal Monday because today, Tuesday, November 16th, 2021 is to the day the exact 20th anniversary of the first Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, as it's known in the U.S., Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone uh, in the U.K. and everywhere else in the world. Um, and we have rewatched the movie, and we're going to talk about that today as sort of our main topic because it seemed like a good time to look back on that one. Um, it definitely, I think, plays into some of the trends we've talked about with a lot of early 2000s movies from our childhood we've gone back to. We're not going to be doing an entire Harry Potter series because Sean would kill me yeah. uh, and himself. It would be a murder-suicide. Um, but I think one is plenty to to give our thoughts on, and I think it's going to be a fun one, um, and I'm excited for that. Uh, there will also be a little bonus segment at the end of this episode. I have recorded myself reading a chapter from a, uh, a piece I wrote that appeared in my 2013 book about Harry Potter and my memories of life sort of growing up with it, and I, I read specifically the chapter about the release of the first two films and that whole time period and it just contains a lot of like nostalgic ephemera and i think is an interesting sort of thing i'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the show you will hear that um and before we go any further i also want to say that this episode is also dedicated and uh in support of uh a trans youth based charity called mermaids uk uh, Mermaids has been supporting transgender, non-binary, and gender-diverse children, young people, and their families since 1995. Their goal is to create a world where gender-diverse children and young people can be themselves and thrive. Mermaids promotes education, awareness, and offers information, support, friendship, and shared experiences to those in need. I uh, personally chose this uh, uh, charity because I, uh, I, I was looking for a UK-based charity. Um, specifically because of J.K. Rowling's outspoken bigotry against trans people. Um, I like this group. I have I knew them from a famous campaign that the YouTuber H. Bomber Guy did a couple years ago on Twitch, the famous Donkey Kong 64 stream that got really big. Um, like I said, looking specifically for a UK-based organization, given the locus of J.K. Rowling's bigotry, and because of the significant issues the United Kingdom is having right now with anti-trans bigotry in their mainstream politics and media. Mm -hmm. It's bad in the U.S., but it is worse in the U.K. right now um, in terms of the mainstream discussion. And Mermaids is the kind of group that, that I thought would be good to support. I have put up a campaign with that group that um, fans and listeners of the Weekly Stuff podcast, I would really urge you to go give a couple of bucks to. Um, the campaign, the link is in our show notes, um, and you can find it, and I will be tweeting it and all of that. I'll give you the URL right now if you want to go to it. It's tiltify.com, that's T-I-L-T-I-F-Y.com, slash at Jonathan Lack, slash Weekly Stuff Podcast. 
Um, again, that link is in our show notes and it'll be everywhere else. And I would encourage you, I gave 20 pounds to that to start it off. Um, it's the, the goal was kind of a default and I meant to set it a little lower because we don't have a ginormous audience, but, uh, it, it's set at a thousand pounds. That would be fucking amazing if we could hit that. Um, it would only take 50 listeners doing what I did. That's not, we have more than 50 listeners. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say. Um, so, you know, I think that would be cool. Share that with your friends. It is a good group, and I think it is uh, the right thing to do, given that we are, you know, I I don't feel per- particularly bad about talking about the Harry Potter movies, because J.K. Rowling did not make the Harry Potter movies, but she does profit from that, and I think she is uh, a gross person at this point, and her bigotry is something that needs to be reckoned with, and because it is also Trans Awareness Week around the world, leading up to Trans uh, Day of Remembrance, Remembrance on November 20th, which is an annual event, um, I thought it would be good to support that, and, you know, this podcast is uh we we never ask you for money it's not a podcast that it's it's always been free for 10 years so if you would like to make that up by giving a couple of bucks it's it's in pounds they'll take us dollars too um i think that would be a good thing to do so that's my long opening spiel to this sean but i i thought it was good to get that uh established right off the bat yeah because i think it is you know it's it's very necessary if you're going to approach any harry potter thing in particular these days i mean it's just like necessary in the sense of like it's a good thing to do and as you say like right now and like you know jk rowling is a big part of this of like the uk having this struggle with um like the trans community having the struggle with like being accepted and there's so much awful shit and it's been going on for years and it just keeps on getting worse and worse um obviously anywhere in the world being trans is um, a fight but in the UK right now it seems just like about as bad as it could be at this moment so yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration and thought of and yeah I'm, I'm glad that we're doing it yeah so there you go that is up right now um, and I would highly you know again just uh, urge you to throw a couple bucks their way that would be great whether we hit the, the goal that is posted there or not um, I think anything helps so that is going to be our main topic for today. Uh, Sean, I mean, we'll talk about all the Harry Potter stuff later. I, I don't think, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Do you want to give the one word? How how annoyed are you on a scale of 1 to 10 that we're doing this? I mean, you know, I don't think that Harry Potter is like the worst thing in the world or whatever. I have, I have a personal distaste for it because I didn't like it when it was like unbelievably popular. Like I imagine it would be like if you were... 12 years old right now and you just didn't care about the marvel stuff at all and yet every birthday party you go to is it's the iron man birthday party and blah blah blah. it's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> being inundated with a piece of culture that you find fundamentally uninteresting on a daily basis is uh a good way to breed uh hate for it um like i think this movie is totally fine i think it's probably about as good a movie as you could make out of source material that i continue to find like fundamentally uninteresting and fairly dull um yeah. but the movie's like I mean, the movie is obscenely too long. It's a two and a half hour movie out of a 200 page children's novel. That is ridiculous. I know that we also live in a world where The Hobbit got a three movie adaptation and we all know how <laughs> how high the limit goes for how much movie you can commit to a children's book. Um, and this is not registered quite on The Hobbit level, but it is like, okay, this is this is way too long for what this movie needs to be. Um, but it, But other than that, like, I think it's a decent little film. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting one to talk about. So I think it'll be a fun 
uh, an, an interesting conversation. I, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And obviously, if you've listened to this podcast for any period of time, you know that one of us has a history with Harry Potter. One of us does. Well, we both have histories with it yes. because we grew up in this period. I have a history of loving it. You have a history of hating it. Um, we it, And we've never done an episode. We, we got through 400 episodes of this show without doing any Harry Potter episodes. Uh, and, and I realized it it. It was something I felt, Sean, like I kind of needed to think about and confront at this anniversary juncture, and you very graciously agreed to do it with me. So thank yes. you for that. And I think it's a, and I think this is interesting because I also think I you know I've I've moved towards this position a lot over the years, and part of me I think the movies are probably better than the books. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, um, all right, but. In addition to that, on today's show, I'm going to talk a little bit about Forza Horizon 5, because I've been playing the shit out of that. Sean, I'm sure you have stuff to talk about. And then we are going to cover the Disney Plus Day announcements. Disney Plus has its own day now. Yay. Uh, and we are making a game out of that, because I cannot look at Disney Plus ridiculous announcements and not decide to make a game. Although, I think this will be the last Disney Plus related game we will ever play on this show, because I realized it is nigh impossible to make jokes anymore. Because the stuff there, like, they are scraping the IP barrel, the bottom of it, like, so hard. The space for, like, the jokes I would make are mostly stolen by what they're actually doing. Yeah, you would have to know so intimately everything that Disney owns for you to be able to come up with something obscure that Disney hasn't already done. Because it does seem like they are at this point where they're just releasing shit and I don't know what it is. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, but Sean, what stuff do you have going on? Honestly, I don't know if I have much to talk about, just in the sense of I'm I'm just still very deep into Persona 5 Royal. I think I'm probably about a week from finishing it. I suspect, depending on how much time I have to play, um, I'll probably be done with it next week. Um, it just continues to be great, but I don't... Yeah, like, I've, I've, I'm, like, almost at the point where, like, the majority of the new stuff is in Royal. Um, so I don't really have anything new to add other than if you want to know my thoughts on Persona 5, we have, like, a... <laughs> 24 yes. hour long podcast or whatever the fuck it is um, that you can listen to. Yes. Uh, by the way, uh, Sean, Thomas, my brother, the occasional Thomas, yes, the did, occasional Thomas, did send in a message about this. He said, Oh, hey, I'm finally listening to your podcast from this week. Please tell Sean that I, the occasional Thomas, appreciate him for playing Persona 5 Royal. If he wants to do a podcast about it and you, Jonathan, still haven't <laughs> played it, I'll do a podcast with him. Okay, we might have to we might have to get into contact and organize something. Right. Uh, One day I'm gonna wake up and you guys will have just like cucked me with a new podcast. I'll we'll be fucked up. Yeah, you know, just like <laughs> make the weekly stuff too. Yeah, this time with the occasional Thomas. Except for he's not occasional anymore. It's 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 just the Thomas. All right, the always the Thomas. <laughs> All right. So anything else? No, I think that's about it. I mean, it's because it's just been that and watching anime stuff for right. Weekly Suit Gundam, so. Which will be next week. We're going to get to yeah. Iron-Blooded Orphans. It's uh, Absence will make the heart grow fonder. We are almost there. Um, let's see. I've been playing the shit out of Forza Horizon 5. That is the new game on all the Xboxes and the PCs. Um, and it is one of easily the best games of this year. It's one of the best games Xbox has ever published or put out. Um, it's a phenomenal game. I think you all know that I love the Forza Horizon games. They're fantastic. The one I first really fell in love with was 3. And Forza Horizon 3 was definitely the game on Xbox One where I sat up and went, 
oh, okay, people should buy an Xbox One for this. This game is that good, and it's this, you know, good a showcase of the hardware. Forza Horizon 5 is that to the nth degree. Uh, I have an Xbox Series S, so I don't even have the super powerful Series X. But Forza Horizon 5 is as visceral a, like, oh, shit, this is a next-gen game experience as I've ever had. Um, and it's kind of in a different vein than something like Ratchet & Clank or uh, Demon Souls or some of the big PS5 games we've had so far, which, like, those games are gorgeous and they have so much cool stuff going on. But I think the big things that those are, um, you know, the way those are next-gen is frequently in, like, doing game stuff that you couldn't do before, like with mm -hmm. Ratchet and Clank loading between all these worlds, and like with Astro's Playroom, how it's using like all of the interactive stuff on the controller, and the load times, and all of that cool stuff. And Forza Horizon 5 is sort of the other version of the next-gen leap, which is just pure graphical horsepower, where it just slaps you in the face with, Jesus Christ, this game looks good in a way games didn't look good last year, right? Yes, um, it is. It is the next gen car game. It is doing the thing yeah. that car games do, where it's like every every time the generation goes up, it's like now we can make the cars look even more like cars, motherfuckers. But it's not just. It's like the cars are like part of it. But like, so Forza Horizon Five, every Horizon game is set in a different country for like a big festival. That in the in the world of the game, there's like a big fun racing festival where I guess you have just negotiated with the government that you will take over the country to race cars and inconvenience everyone who actually lives there who doesn't appear on the map because Forza Horizon doesn't want you going around hitting people with your car. I mean, um, Forza it exists in like a Yu-Gi-Oh esque universe where the only thing that people care about is driving cars. So that's very it, it makes true. Sense yeah. To me. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. So Forza Horizon 3 was Australia, and that was awesome. Forza Horizon 4 was England, and I didn't play a ton of it, and I don't think a lot of people did, because it was like, it was a really good game. It just, I don't think England was the most, like, I don't know. England, I saw this on a Kotaku article recently. Someone said, it felt like going home for the holidays, and like two weeks was fine, and then you want to go back to wherever you actually live. Um, and I think that's kind of true. Uh, but this one, 5, is in Mexico, which is cool as shit. And it is amazing. It just, the environments, the, um, like, it's a big map, but I think it feels bigger than it actually even is because of the sheer degree of environmental, um, like, uh, variety that is in the game and all the different sort of, like, almost like biomes you go through of deserts and jungles and beaches and uh, all sorts, and, and, like, there's all these, like, cool, like, Incan ruins and stuff that you drive through. You don't like drive through the ruins and like destroy stuff. They do. I was I was happy to. I was kind of happy, half sad. There was a big like staircase like on one of the sides of like the ruins that almost looks like a pyramid. And I thought, can I drive up that and do a jump? They do not let you do that. I think they do draw the line of like cultural respect at not driving the car over the ruins. <laughs> um, it's like let me destroy this ancestral tomb with my yes. sick Forza car. It's one of the things on the checklist. You you yeah. hit all of the little boards that give you XP, and then you hit all of the tombs. <laughs> no, but um, it is so cool. And, like, I don't just want to talk about how cool it looks, because there is more to the game than that. But then again, part of the appeal of the Forza Horizon games in particular is doing fun racing shit in cool locations. And, like, it's a wish fulfillment sort of thing. And... The, just this game is unbelievably good looking like I don't even know how to quite describe it other than like it's it amazes me that like not just my little series s machine but any machine can put out graphics this good um like the, the like HDR is obviously a huge part of it because the sheer range of color in the game is jaw-dropping but just like the amount of stuff on screen the the density of foliage the level of detail on the roads like if you like 
stop your car and you look at the road textures, it just looks like they like went out and photographed hundreds of miles of road and like put the pavement in the game. It is so detailed. And there's so much stuff like that where it's like you realize how textures and stuff in other games usually are like more of a facsimile of something that is like repeated a lot. And mm. this just looks like the thing and it's crazy. Um, this is the first game, I think, since Jedi Fallen Order, where I have opted for the quality mode over the 60 FPS performance mode. And Jedi Fallen Order didn't actually hit 60 FPS, which is why we all stuck with quality mode. Um, but the it's an interesting one, because the quality versus performance mode in Forza Horizon 5 is not a resolution shift. Um, on Series S, it's 1080p either way. On Series X, it's 4K either way. The difference is purely in graphical effects going on. And the hmm. quality mode, it's 30 FPS, but it has so much going on in terms of foliage density and just like lighting effects and rain effects and all sorts of like environmental things that are clearly cut back on in the performance mode. And Forza Horizon, I think people who've played this will will know, it is uniquely good at making 30 FPS feel smooth. Like the way they, they like uh, Digital Foundry has done a bunch of videos on this game and they're really fascinating. But one of the things they were talking about is how it uses motion blur is quite a bit more advanced than most games. And it's actually, it like, this is an overused word, but it actually applies here. It feels cinematic in the way it uses motion blur and the way like things speed past and the way it looks. And then the game also is like, it is taking your button inputs in at 60 FPS, not 30. So it's like, it's still very, very responsive. Um, so even though I have like nary played a 30 FPS game since the PS5 came out, it has not bothered me on Forza Horizon 5 and the quality mode is just that gorgeous. Like it is the demo video game to show off your TV if you just wanted to like show someone in and slap them in the face with like this is a next gen game Ratchet and Clank they'd have to like it looks good but they'd have to sit down and play it to like see all the things it's doing I think mm -hmm. this is one where you would play and you'd go oh yeah this games didn't look like this a year ago um and that because it's also it's like it's such a like easy to understand aesthetic like that's part of like the car game thing of yeah. like and it's the same thing with like sports games don't I think have it as much as they used to because sports games are weird now and they're like such this like it's its own dimension within the video game industry. But it used to be that like it was like whatever your big car game was like Gran Turismo or something and it was like Madden were the games that you looked at when you had the big jumps from like PS1, PS2, PS2, PS3 where you saw holy shit like I, I've seen cars and I've seen videos of cars racing and I've seen video of people playing football or basketball or whatever and that ability for like it to sort of capture the essence of whatever that like aesthetic is, is yeah, I do think it like it ends up being more immediately impressive than something like Ratchet and Clank, which like is going for a like is gorgeous and it's going for a cartoon aesthetic, but it doesn't have the same like put it in a Best Buy, put it on the t display TV, and everyone looks at it and goes like, holy shit, that's the fucking like that just looks like a car. Like I'm just looking at videos of a car driving through this gorgeous like area of Mexico. Yeah, exactly. And man, I I don't know if there's any actual technical explanation for this. The cars themselves when you're driving look like they are being rendered at 60 FPS. There's like a solidity and a clarity to and I think it's the way they're employing motion blur and then just the raw graphical horsepower put behind those cars, but like the cars look so fucking like clean in the center of the image and good and cool. Like even if you're not a car person, you will be like, these cars look fucking good. And then of course there's all the Mexican environments, but you know, around all of that, the Forza Horizon, um, 
formula at this point is just it's so good and it's been good for a long time but and forza horizon 5 is not a massive shakeup, but i do think it does a lot of little things to just make it even cleaner and more fun and you know i said this about three when it came out but i think five there's just all these little edges they've sharpened to make it even more true every single creative decision in this game feels like it started and ended with the question how do we make this maximally fun for the player? There is no moment in Forza Horizon 5 where it feels like you are doing busy work or random guff or like the menus are like just a bitch to fuck around in or all the sorts of things that can just like, even in really good video games, you realize like, oh, this is the part where I'm not having fun. Forza Horizon 5, just every single activity it wants to do, the sheer variety of things they have found for you to do in race cars, um, all of the like fun character they've put in the game like the writing in these games has gotten better over the years where by the point of now forza horizon 5 like your main character just talks all the time and you pick their voice and like there's characters who like run the festival who you've known over the last couple of games and all of the djs on the radio station have pretty established personalities and there's just a lot of fun writing in a way that actually that's the thing that makes me excited for playground doing fable because that's the kind of open world RPG where you just need a lot of character as you're walking mm -hmm. around the world. And they've gotten really good at that in a game that doesn't need it. I don't need Forza to have a bunch of like fun characters, but it kind of does at this point, and that's surprising. Um, and it's just everything you do. There's like an overwhelming amount of stuff to go do in the world, but the game very much encourages you to take it at whatever pace you want to because the whole world of Forza Horizon is centered around your character, who is the superstar. And like, it's basically they have taken over Mexico and made it into your playground with all sorts of stuff for you to go do as the main player. And it's just, it's a dream come true. It's a phenomenal game. I... It's, it's not like there's a ton necessarily critically to say about it unless we want to get into like the nuts and bolts of just how well like the game design is and how well it feels to play and all of that, which I, if you haven't played it, there's not a ton of back and forth to do there. But I also don't want to like say it's really good for a racing game. It's just a really good game. Like this is one of the best games of the year for any genre. It's a phenomenal game. And I think sometimes with racing games, we like grade them on a weird curve where we go like, oh yeah, that's great for a racing game, but I, you know, who cares? And I don't want to say that. Like, Forza Horizon 5 is genuinely phenomenal. Um, and it is like, it's a console seller. It's a system, like, it's a reason to have an Xbox. Or if you have a nice PC, play it there. I probably would not try playing this on Xbox One from what I've seen. Like, I think the cutbacks are too severe. Um, like, part of it is there's the load times are mostly gone now it's um mm -hmm. mostly in what i've played on series s it seems like xbox's load times are not as blazing fast as the ps5 but they're very fast and i would say forza horizon 5 kind of feels like ghost of tsushima did where there are load screens but they could probably cut them if they wanted to because they go by so fast mm -hmm. um and for a big racing game like this if you played any other ones that's crazy like there's a lot of moments when i'm playing forza horizon 5 and there's that moment where in the previous games, like when you finish a race or something and are loading back into the world, I would always go pick up my phone to futz around while I waited for the game to load. And I'll do that with five. And by the time I've opened and unlocked my phone, I'm back in the world. And it's like those little things that are like, oh, right, right. I don't need to do that anymore. And actually, I think a lot of Forza Horizon 5's design is built around those load times. Like if you've seen, everyone's talked about it, the opening 10 minutes of five 
every Forza Horizon game opens with a big cool showcase where you do some big races like and they introduce you to the world but five makes it this big fluid sequence where it jumps you to like three very different parts of the map and has you do things like just site just one after the other with no loading um and that's one of the things that had to be broken up in the xbox one version for instance so it's really cool it's a f don't don't let it like the fact that it's technically cross-gen fool you this is as next gen a next gen game as you're gonna play it's the real deal awesome yeah it's interesting that i feel like forza like people have really liked forza horizon but i feel like this game is getting this like big moment that i think is it a combination is. of the next genness of it the fact that obviously it's a very good game and then also like this has just been such a for obvious reasons a very like kind of like quiet and sparse holiday season um where i was shocked the other day jonathan to discover that call of duty came out like a week I and a half too. ago yeah uh and it was like like the video came up from digital foundry that it was like their graphical breakdown like wait, what? And I looked at this, like, Call of Duty Vanguard. It's like, that's out? And then I was like, is this, like, a preview thing? It's like, I looked at it, I was like, no, th that video is, like, a week old. Like, it's late even for a normal Digital Foundry video. Um, and I had my mind blown by the fact that Call of Duty just came out and I didn't even notice. Um, and it's kind of, that's kind of what a lot of this holiday season has felt like. And, like, so Forza Horizon 5 feels like it is, like, the one big video game marquee release, especially because Sony doesn't have anything else, right? They had Horizon, their Horizon got delayed to uh, February. So it's, like, this game just gets to, like, hit and have its own thing because every other video game publisher either delayed their games or just, like, you know, clearly nobody gives a shit about Call of Duty Vanguard. I'm sure it's sold decently, although it's... I've, I was looking at it, it has sold uh, like poorly for a Call of Duty, which is still very good for any other game. Um, but it is like not making a cultural impact. And Forza Horizon 5 just feels like it gets to have all this space totally to itself, which is very cool. It is very cool. And it's also the clearest moment so far of Xbox's overall strategy having paid off like as well as I think anyone could have ever hoped. Like, because it had like four and a half million concurrent players the other day, mm -hmm. like across all the platforms. That's fucking nuts. Like that's amazing. And it's it's because it is on all the Xboxes and Series S and Series X have sold really well, like better than the one was doing at this point. Um, the Series S is something you can actually go buy in stores, which is different than the Series X or the PS5. It's on PC and it was doing well on Steam and it's doing well on Game Pass and any, you know, if you've got any good computer, you can play it. And then I think there's people still, you know, probably playing it on Xbox One. And so it's everywhere. Game Pass means that you can try it from, you know, you don't have to pay $60. You could get it for a free trial or the 15 a month or whatever. Um, and like, it's just clearly like all of Xbox's positioning. That actually makes me pretty like hopeful about the future of xbox because i think forza horizon is one of the jewels in their crown but they've got lots of other good stuff and they've got lots in the works right now and this feels replicable with other things that are sort of in their arsenal um and that's good to see um and definitely like this is this is the most i think a racing game has had a moment in a very long time yeah it's definitely the most that a racing game has a moment and also i think the most a like xbox first party game has had a big moment in a while yes. like even you know because like you said like you've really enjoyed like years five and years four and stuff um but i feel like those games even though the fan base like enjoys them and they get well reviewed they don't feel like they get cultural moments the way that like nintendo big first party games do sony big first party games no. do. they like dominate the conversation um in a way that xbox has not had a first party game dominate the like general conversation 
in forever um and this is it's it's cool to see as you say like it feels like their strategy is paying off and that like i like that all three of the companies sony xbox and and nintendo all are kind of doing slightly different things like you know xbox has its game pass stuff sony has its big premiere first party stuff um that are like very single player focused games then nintendo has its like very kind of friendly family oriented like lower kind of scale in terms of not the graphical 4k all that nonsense and it's like handheld also it's nice to see that like all three parties are very healthy with their own strategies whereas for a long time it has felt like sony nintendo well nintendo wasn't doing well until the switch sony was doing very well with the ps4 and then microsoft was sort of lost for a long time it feels like finally all three companies are in this like really really strong position yeah it uh, it definitely, it weirdly puts even more weight on Halo Infinite now. I feel like to not <laughs> shit the bed because I feel like they could roll out of Forza Horizon Five into a pretty big like momentum if Halo Infinite, if the multiplayer specifically lands well, and we'll see. I've heard good things about it from people who were in the beta, but you know I am curious. There's also the rumor going around that they're gonna shadow drop the Halo Infinite multiplayer on monday for the xbox's anniversary i have no idea how true that is that sounds like internet bullshit but weirder things have happened yeah it sounds like complete horseshit to me but you know people listening to this podcast will know whether maybe i'll sound like it will sound like complete idiots saying this like ah, oh, that's not gonna happen yeah i really don't think it's gonna happen but maybe it would it seems like a bad idea but who knows yeah who knows uh all right any other stuff before we jump into the news uh no i think i i, I, I was gonna say it's like i just yeah i don't want to because i start talking about persona i'll just talk about forever so so let's yeah, let's move on to <laughs> to other stuff you want to talk about disney plus i mean not really but you did send me you sent me a very funny text message of saying it's like sean don't look at any of the disney stuff of uh, disney plus stuff because i'm going to do a game out of it and and that was like six hours after like all that those announcements had been done so it's like if i had looked at it it would have been way too late but luckily for you i sent you the text is like well and this was literally true i opened the twitter thread because it was like retweeted on to my timeline and it was like oh there's a bunch of new disney plus stuff and i saw a handful of announcements so there's like a few things that i saw and then i slowly started getting a headache looking at it and i turned it off like that was not me making a joke when i told you I got a headache jonathan i literally got a headache looking at that stuff it's like <laughs> i gotta walk away from this i went outside and i took a walk for a little bit because it's like yeah it was it was it was distressing i don't know the fact that it feels like this is the second we've had one of these here's this giant disney plus like a million tv shows and projects announced when like the last time we did this most of that stuff isn't even fucking out yet no it's uh, not. you know like all that star wars stuff that they announced the only thing we have is a trailer for the boba fett one um so it's like it's like having another one of these giant announcements when most of the stuff for the last round of announcements you're still waiting on is is literally headache inducing yeah and the boba fett thing wasn't even announced at that disney plus thing it was announced with the mandalorian season two finale and like the reason it's coming sooner than all that stuff is because the Boba Fett show is just Mandalorian season three. Like, yeah. in in a it doesn't have Mando in it, but like literally, if you go look at like in a production sense, they're actually even like the scripts are numbered three hundred one, three hundred two, three hundred three. Like they're making it as it's the same team that did Mandalorian two. So that's why it's coming faster. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not really a new show. So anywho, uh, yeah, Sean, I was putting the outline together as I often do. And the only way I could make it 
bearable for myself to put this outline together was to turn it into a game. So that's what I did. Um, so Sean, not everything I'm going to read here is gamified because there's some stuff that I could not come up with a game for. But throughout these announcements, there are nine rounds for you, Sean. Okay. Um, so enough for you to, we'll, we'll, we'll have a definitive, did you come out on top or not through nine rounds. Um, I, I really should have increased it to 10 so I could give you a letter grade, but this will have to do. Um, Sean, let's start here. Disney Plus is debuting in March of 2022, a remake of a classic comedy about a family with a bunch of kids that was also remade in the mid-2000s. Are they making a Yours, Mine, and Ours movie starring Jada Pinkett Smith and Ashton Kutcher? That movie was first made in 1968 and then in 2005. Or are they making a Cheaper by the Dozen movie starring Gabrielle Union and Zach Braff? That was first made in 1950 and then in 2003. Both of which are the premises, a family with like 11 kids. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. So Yours, Mine, and Ours with Jada Pinkett yeah. Smith and Ashton Kutcher? Or Cheaper by the Dozen with Gabrielle Union and Zach Braff? I'm going to go with Cheaper by the Dozen entirely off of, I feel like... I, would, I don't feel like, Jonathan, you would produce the names for me, Gabrielle Union and Zach Braff, as actors off the top of your head. And I feel like Jada Pinkett Smith is there because she is the, the star of hit video game Enter the Matrix, Niobe, so, which we just recently did this podcast. So that's my reasoning. Uh, so I'm going to say Cheaper by the Dozen is the real one and the other one is the fake one. You are correct. Yes. Um, your reasoning... Uh... That's actually funny. I didn't even make that connection with Jada Pinkett Smith. I literally went with Gabrielle Union and I looked for other actresses of the same age range who she has been in movies with and I came up with Jada Pinkett Smith and the same for Zach Braff and Ashton Kutcher who were both like on sitcoms in the mid-2000s and they're like the same age. Um, that was it. That was not... I did not make the Matrix connection while doing this but there you go. You I, subconsciously did. The Matrix did. made the connection for you. Yeah, the Matrix has me. Uh, let's see. They did talk about the movie. This one was already announced, but I just want to make fun of it again. The sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted coming fall 2022. That was a that was a question in last year's game. Um, I forget if you got it right or not. If you I, don't, I didn't even remember. If you had told me that they were making that movie, and I would have told you that I haven't heard of that before. Um, so, you know, I did not remember that they were making a sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted. Because that one, I probably got that wrong because that sounds like a joke you would make. Like, that yeah. so sounds like a joke that you would come up with. <laughs> so I'm guessing that I probably thought that that was something you made up. All right. There is a live-action movie based on a Disney afternoon animated series from the 90s coming this spring. Is it Chippendale Rescue Rangers starring John Mulaney and Andy Samberg as Chippendale? Or is it Quack Pack starring Pete Davidson, Michael Che, and Will Forte as Huey, Dewey, and Louie with Bill Hader as Uncle Donald? Wait, did you say, this? is this an animated remake or? I think it's a live-action movie. A live-action With, like, the characters movie. will be animated. Okay, okay. It's, it's not, they don't have, like, a bunch it's, of, like, actual ducks with, like, no. peanut butter in their mouth or something. A Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeakquel style. Okay. Um, can you give me those choices again? I was yeah, yeah, having yeah. a hard time okay. even trying to understand what the fuck you were saying to me. All right, so these are the bad. 90s cartoons that we yes. grew up with. Are they doing Quack Pack, starring Pete Davidson, Michael Che, and Will Forte as Huey, Dewey, and Louie, with Bill Hader as Uncle Donald? Or are they doing Chippendale Rescue Rangers with John Mulaney and Andy Samberg as Chippendale? Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah, this is what I wanted. <laughs> I think they are 
actually doing Chippendale Rescue Rangers in that quack pack is your joke, but I am not confident in that answer at all. Both of these seem equally... Oh, okay, I'm right. Because they seemed equally probable to me. Because what I did for the... I just... John Mulaney and Andy Samberg, I just picked other SNL actors from the period. Um, And, you know... I do. Bill Hader as Donald Duck sounds kind of funny to me. I hope Bill Hader as Donald Duck was like the one where that made it seem plausible to me of like yeah. that's actually really good casting. Like that's interesting. Like I could kind of I can kind of see it. No, we are getting Chippendale with John Mulaney and Andy Samberg, which doesn't actually sound like the worst thing in the world. But there you go. Uh, let's see. Peter Jackson is making a Beatles documentary that is coming November twenty fifth. That actually sounds good. Um, Disney got the rights to that, and it's like a multi-night event um, documentary series that sounds like it's going to be interesting. All right, but for our next round, Sean, there is a sequel to a beloved, quote-unquote, 90s Disney movie, live-action Disney movie, mm-hmm. coming next year on Disney+. Plus. Is it Hocus Pocus 2 with returning stars Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker, or is it The Santa Claus 4 with returning star Tim Allen? Uh, did, have they not made a Hocus Pocus 2? Hocus Pocus was a one-hit wonder? One-hit wonder. I'm going to say that they're making a Hocus Pocus 2 then. Um, it seems like a thing that they should do. People really like that movie. You are correct. They are not making yeah. Santa Claus 4. I mean, they are at some point. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Just not announced yet. Yeah. All right. Which of these is a live-action remake of a Disney animated classic coming next year Featuring a frequent director-star pairing who have made many movies together. It's very specific. Are they making The Sword in the Stone, directed by Matthew Vaughn and starring Colin Firth as Merlin? Or are they doing Pinocchio, directed by Robert Zemeckis, with Tom Hanks as Geppetto? Oh, interesting. Um, I'm going to say... Pinocchio because that almost that almost sounds like that's like a Mandela effect thing where if you told me that Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks made a Pinocchio movie already <laughs> with like that bad CG like Polar Express CG thing um I would kind of believe you if you told me that that had come out so I'm going to say that they're doing that because that seems like that's just from some parallel universe you're correct yes I'm four for four so far baby you are. I thought that was a good one, though. I, I thought yeah. I thought I'd challenge you. Yeah, I I totally believe that they would make a Sword in the Stone movie by Matthew Vaughn. Yes. That sounds like something they'd do. Um, I thought about making that Guy Ritchie. Would you have believed that more or less if that were Guy Ritchie? I think I honestly would have believed that more if it was Guy Ritchie. I think okay. I would have been more tempted. I thought that was maybe you know he did that King Arthur movie, so I thought maybe that was too too repetitive. But there you go. They are also making a Peter Pan movie directed by David Lowry with Jude Law as Captain Hook. But that movie actually sounds good, so I didn't include mm-hmm. it in the game. Um, David Lowry did, like, The Green Knight this year. He's right. done a lot of good movies. And Jude Law as Captain Hook, that's kind of inspired casting. So that actually sounds good. I, I removed it from the game for that reason. Are they going to do the, like, what, what the fuck was that movie that came out in, like, 2013 or something with Hugh Jackman in it? That was Oh, yeah. Of- it was, it was like Pan, and that was the Joe Wright one. That was when Joe Wright's career really fell apart, and they did the Smells Like Teen Spirit musical yes, number in the middle of it. that's the thing yeah. that yeah popped into my head immediately, is that that scene yeah. is fucking... I mean, I haven't seen that movie. I love that scene, though, on YouTube. Every once in a while, <laughs> it, it comes up somehow. I'm like, I'll watch this weird scene from this Peter Pan movie that nobody has ever watched. All right, I think this next one is the hardest question I came up with. Now that Disney owns 20th Century Fox... Oh, they own the rights to the Ice Age franchise. <laughs> I did That had never even occurred to me. They do own the rights to Ice Age. Weird. Ice, 
Ice Age has been dormant since the fifth movie in 2016. There hasn't been Ice Age in a while. You mean Ice Age has been on ice? It has been. But Disney is reviving the franchise. This is true. They are making more Ice Age in 2022. But, Sean, are they okay. doing it with a series of shorts about the misadventures of the mascot character Scrat, titled Ice Age Gone Nutty? Or a feature film starring the Simon Pegg character Buck, first introduced in Ice Age 3, titled The Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild? Oh, Jesus. Because didn't because like they did do short, like scratch shorts back in the day, didn't they? Wasn't that a thing For that theaters, actually happened? Yeah, but not yeah. like as a TV thing. Hmm. I mean, the scrap thing would be the reasonable thing, right? It's like you could just throw that together. The Buck Wild. I don't even know who that character is. I mean, I saw Ice Age in the theater uh, when I was eight or fucking however old that movie is. Um. And I've not seen Ice Age since, nor any of its, uh, I'm sure, illustrious sequels. So I feel like I'm unequipped to analyze this question that well. I'm going to say that they're actually doing these scratch shorts. But there's a part of me that thinks maybe they're doing the movie because that sounds like an awful idea. But I'm going to say the scratch shorts. You are wrong. <laughs> oh, God. In fact, Gone Nutty was already a scratch short. I just took the title. Okay. Um, the Simon Pegg thing is real. They are making the Ice Age Adventures of Buck Wild. That took significant research for me to figure out who that was because I actually have seen Ice Age 3, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, but I saw it in Spanish class, dubbed in Spanish. <laughs> so I was not aware Simon Pegg was in these movies. <laughs> That's, that is the appropriate venue in which to have seen any of the Ice Age movies. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. There, there you I've go. seen the Finding Nemo more times in Spanish than I've seen in English. I've only seen it once in English, and I saw it <laughs> twice in Spanish. So There you go. <laughs> I'm sure I have as well. Um, all right, this next one, Sean, I wanted to make into a game, and then I realized I could not possibly make something more ridiculous than this announcement. There is a new original movie coming to Disney Plus called Sneakerella, Quote, set in the avant-garde street sneaker subculture of New York City, the high-energy, music-driven movie puts a gender-flipped twist on the Cinderella fairy tale coming February 2022. Okay, so they looked at the, the slipper, the glass slipper in Cinderella and said, you know what's big with the kids these days? Sneaker culture. So let's take uh -huh. the slipper and do a sneaker thing with it I could, I can like if if you told me this was like an experimental Broadway musical, I think I would buy it. Disney making it sounds like hell. Yes. Uh, all right. Why are they doing this? All right. Next round. This is round six. Disney Plus will be rebooting a Disney Channel animated series from the early two thousands next year. Is it a reboot of The Proud Family, titled The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder? Or is it a reboot of Kim Possible titled Mission Kim Possible? Oh, God. I mean, I, I, would, I would have immediately said just Kim Possible until you said that it was called Mission Kim. Is that what the original show was just called was Mission Kim Possible? No, is no, no. The, the original show is just Kim Possible. That was um, not the full title of it? Nope. Okay. Oh. I mean, it seems more probable to me that they would make a Kim Possible show. Because I forgot that the Proud Family existed. Um, but I have, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to say Kim Possible because it's my gut. I don't know. Kim Possible. I fooled you. 
the proud, proud family. family louder and prouder is a real thing they're making mission kim possible is not and i think that's a mistake because that's a good title for a show yeah, like, it's such a good title that, like, because I, I, I said Mission Kim Possible, that's ridiculous. And then as soon as I said it, I'm like, I think that is just the name of the cartoon. And you were right. It isn't that. It is just Kim Possible. Um, yeah. Kim wow. Possible was good, too. Like, they should, should do more Kim yeah, Possible. Yeah, that show anyway. was decent, you know? Yeah. That had, that had Will Friedle from Batman Beyond. Anyway, um, as as Ron Stoppable. The, the names were fun on that show. Yes. Uh, all right. Sean, uh, next round. Disney Plus will be debuting four, count them, four animated series based on recent animated movies in 2022, but I'm going to give you five. You pick the fake one. Oh, Jesus. Okay, this feels four, like a, This is cheap. Four real, one fake. You identify the fake one. Baymax, a spinoff of Big Hero 6, starring okay. Baymax. Zootopia Plus, a spinoff of Zootopia on Disney Plus. Tiana, a sequel series to the Princess and the Frog film with the character Tiana. Upward, a spin-off of Pixar's Onward, a new Cars series called Cars on the Road. Okay. So is it Baymax? The problem is I have seen literally none of these. Like, I haven't seen anything that any of these are from. I haven't seen any of those. Like, it's too recent Disney shit for me to have seen um, because I stopped watching new Disney, like, Disney, Disney stuff in, like, 2008 or something. Um, I'm going to say the fake one is upward as which like i because i was really hoping when you said upward that it was and it's a crossover between up and onward um which i don't think it would be i'm gonna say upward is the fake one because it just is such a weird title when you are a studio that already has a movie called up why would you why would you try to confuse people and think that you could see the the talking dog from the movie up that i know exists because it was in a trailer um because i have not seen up um, so I'm going to say Upward is fake. You're correct. Yes. I really hoped you would be fooled by Zootopia Plus because that is a terrible name for a show. That was my other one. Like it was, I mean, the problem is that Zootopia is so unbelievably popular. I'm like, well, of course they would make one. Like it is, the, that's the stupidest title you could possibly have for it. But of course they <laughs> should make something off of Zootopia. That Onward movie came out and nobody gave a fuck about it. So why would you make Well, we don't really know. That, that, that came out a week before the pandemic closures and then had to go straight to Disney Plus. So it's not totally fair to know if like that movie did well or not. But yeah. I've, yeah, I've, I'm not saying whether or not movie. it did well. I'm saying nobody gave a fuck about it. I don't know how many people saw it, but nobody cared whether they saw it or not. That's, that's definitely true. All right. I'm going to just list all the Marvel live-action shows for 2022 and beyond. Uh, nothing new was actually announced here, with one exception. So I'm not bothering with a game. It's too fucking hard at this point. I couldn't come up with stupider shit than some of this. Yeah. Um, some of this is good. I mean, we've got Moon Knight, She-Hulk, yes. and Miss Marvel all got their first little trailers. Those are all coming 2022. Miss Marvel was actually pushed back a little bit. It was supposed to be this, fall, this like, December. Um, but they pushed that back. Um, but those three are coming next year. Um, they announced Echo, a spinoff from the not-yet-released Hawkeye series starring a character we have yet to meet, but they're making Echo. I don't know why they would announce that before Hawkeye's out, but okay. Yeah, that seems really weird. Okay. Uh, they confirmed they're making Ironheart star starring Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams. Uh, that character will be introduced actually in Black Panther 2 and then will be in this show. Okay. Uh, they confirmed they're doing Secret Invasion with Sam Jackson as Nick Fury and Ben Mendelsohn uh, as the Skrull from Captain Marvel. Uh, they're also doing... Uh, this is... Oh, just fucking... Now they're just making shows based on memes. 
Agatha House of Harkness with Catherine Hahn returning as Agatha. And it's basically just WandaVision Season 2. It's Jack Schaefer, the creator and showrunner of that show, is doing this. So it's WandaVision Season 2, but it's about Agatha because shows are memes now. Yeah, that seems like an awful idea. Like she was, like most of the stuff involving that character was some of the weakest stuff in that show. So let's give but her her own TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of this is in addition to the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, Armor Wars, starring Don Cheadle and an untitled Wakanda series. Good God. I. It's the thing where it's like the only ones of those I'm like interested in at all is the new stuff, right? Like I'm interested in seeing Moon Knight, She-Hulk, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ms. Marvel. But then, then you get into like Secret Invasion and, and all that and like... You gotta stop. Like you gotta. They need to stop doubling down on this. On like the end game era, th- Marvel. Like you need to yeah. put a shutter on that and just move on. Like with Shang Chi, get us new characters and new stories. Or or like you can do stuff like Doctor Strange is fine. Where you know there's some still some characters. That I think there's a lot of life left in them because they hadn't explored them all the way. Um, but yeah, doing I just like I like Nick Fury or the Sam Jack is Nick Fury. I, I liked Ben Mendelsohn in in Captain Marvel, but I just don't I just don't need to see a TV show about them, you know? No. Uh, all right, animated Marvel series announced for 2022 and beyond include uh, Spider Man Freshman Year, an animated series prequel to MCU Spider Man. They didn't say if Tom Holland will voice Spidey, which makes me think he won't, um, because that would be the draw here. Um, so that's interesting. The draw uh, here is that they're doing that the art style is based on Steve Ditko's original art style from the old Spider-Man comics. This was like the only <laughs> announcement okay. I saw that was like, okay, I like Spider-Man. Yeah. I like those Steve Ditko comics and like the logo and like some of the character stuff they showed. It's like old school classic Peter Parker design. Like, I have no idea how this ties into MCU stuff at all. I don't know if the stories are going to be good or whatever, but at least like the aesthetic they're going for is immediately interesting to me. I liked the jokes on Twitter that this will reveal why no one says the name Uncle Ben in the MCU. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something really bad happened to him. We're getting I Am Groot, a series of short films showing baby Groot growing up. Yay. Uh, what If Season 2 was announced for some fucking reason. That show had the least hype of any Marvel thing ever. Uh, and oh, Marvel... you're saying the show What If. I was I was having a hard time following that sentence. Recently. Sorry, what yeah. if season two was announced? Like, what if season, what if season two to what was announced? It's like, oh, you're not, <laughs> this is not a conditional sentence. This is the show, quote, What If has a season two announced. Yeah, everybody seems to have hated that. Um, it was, like, I was fucking terrible. Like, yeah, I was initially curious about it, and then I ultimately never watched any of it, and my Disney Plus thing has expired, um, so I'm certainly not going to watch it now. Um, it, like... I can't believe how bad it looked. It looked like sub-early Ruby stuff from Rooster Teeth level of animation. Like, it was awful to look at. Like, it looked like they paid for it with nickels out of couch cushions. Like, oh my god. But Mm. we're not just getting that. We're also getting a spinoff from What If called Marvel Zombies. Imagining all the Marvel heroes fighting zombies. No, it's not them fighting zombies. It's them becoming zombies. It's a comic book. There's like a Yeah. It's... There's there is a panel from one of the Marvel zombies of Spider-Man that haunts me to this day where <laughs> Sandman this is like there's some sort of time travel shit happens Marvel zombies gets fucking crazy um and you go back to like college era like 1970s Peter Parker Spider-Man and he gets killed by Sandman because Sandman goes into his mouth and then explodes him from the inside out and it is like utterly disgusting and horrifying 
Um, nice. So I just want to share that, that with everybody. It is it is very the way it's done because it's in a very stripped down seventy style comic book art. It's like it's very upsetting. Um, so if you want to be like see that in your fucking nightmares, you can go look that up uh, and see that panel. Here's my pitch: the new movie Spider Man No Way Home, multiverse stuff. It's probably going to have all the other Spider-Men in it. That's what I want to happen to Andrew Garfield. I want Sandman <laughs> from Spider-Man 3 to crawl inside Andrew Garfield Spidey's mouth and fucking murder him. It's like, it's amazing. It's just, he seems so sweet in Spider-Man 3. He just seemed like a really nice guy. He's just a dad <laughs> bat on, like, down on his luck. It's like, turns out he's a real ruthless motherfucker when he meets <laughs> Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Holy shit. Look, he has it coming, let's be honest. Yeah, it's like, your movie was utter garbage. Get out of here. <laughs> The most, it also he was sociopath Spider-Man, so you know. Yeah. Uh, all right. The most interesting thing announced, I think, was X-Men '97. This is a new yeah. animated series sequel to the '90s animated series. I don't know if anyone involved in that show is still around to work on it, but that's kind of cool, and it's the first thing Disney is doing with the X-Men license. Yeah, yeah, I like that cartoon. They have to, of course, they have to bring back the theme song. That's the thing that's yes. most important. Um, and it is on Disney Plus. It's been on there since the beginning, yeah. so you can go find it which is cool um so that's interesting yeah i um, wonder like because i that, you know that cartoon's so old at this point i don't know anything about like the voice cast or anything like that like how yeah. likely it would be to get those people back um but yeah yeah all right uh lucasfilm didn't have much of a presence here they did update on two previously announced things they showed some behind the scenes footage of the willow sequel series with warwick davis returning i didn't um, remember they were doing that but okay they are uh, that's coming 2022. That's, again, Lucasfilm has Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Willow, and Howard the Duck, and that's the four things they have. We will get Howard the Duck, but right now we're at Willow. We're not quite to the bottom of the barrel. Um, yeah, Howard the Duck is still just cameo material for now until he gets his yeah. own Disney Plus animated series. Animated. I, Sean, I mean, it's going to be a $200 million Marvel series. I mean, let's be fucking honest here. Uh, all right, Obi-Wan Kenobi show got a little teaser of behind-the-scenes footage and concept art, which did show... A rematch between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader before the events of Episode 4. And I do have to ask you, Sean, does that... Like, you know way more about that interperiod. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Or do is it better that they have never met between 3 and 4? Um, I like. I think that maybe was an EU thing. I don't remember. Um, but it, I think it it makes sense in the, in, in the sense that, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi clearly already knows that Anakin is Darth Vader, right? By the time they meet in episode four, which is not a thing mm -hmm. he ever finds out at the end of episode three, right? So there is, I think it's in the novelization of Revenge of the Sith, or it might be in a novel called Labyrinth of Evil that is also set like at, during those events. Um, in one of those two, there is a very cool scene where Obi-Wan is like at the cantina in Mos Eisley and he sees some like galactic news hologram footage or whatever and he sees Darth Vader and he realizes that it has to be Anakin and that he failed in his mission. And I always liked that scene. But the idea of them meeting one more time, like Anakin knows that Obi-Wan is alive. Obi-Wan doesn't know that Anakin is still alive. So there is That's like a weird say, yeah. yeah, gap in that knowledge where by the time they meet again in episode four, it feels like they like have more understanding of that kind of like dynamic than they than you know about from the end of episode three. So I think there's certainly space um, in like a shortly after episode three period for them to fight and probably Darth Vader seemingly killing Obi-Wan and believing Obi-Wan to be dead and Obi-Wan escaping alive. And thus Darth Vader can do his like, oh, I sense her presence, blah, 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 and all that shit. Yes. All right. Two more rounds, Sean. Nat Geo, National Geographic, also part of Disney+. Plus. You might have uh -huh. forgotten. They have a lot. 
National Geographic will have two upcoming series hosted by giant movie stars. Okay. I'm going to give you three. One of these is fake. Chris Hemsworth will host a show called Limitless, exploring the boundaries of human potential with various stunts. Okay. Dwayne Johnson will host a series called Rock in a Hard Place as he visits <laughs> famous and dangerous free climbing locations. Okay. Will yeah. Smith will host a series called Welcome to Earth, his catchphrase from Independence Day, as he journeys to exotic locations around the globe. Tragically, Jonathan, this is one where I have to spoil the game for you because I've already seen the poster for Welcome to Earth. Oh, that's Hit bad. movie star. Will Smith, I would have never guessed it based on the framing. It didn't even occur to me that it was the Independence Day line um, because I had only seen yeah. the poster. Um, I didn't see anything else about it. Um, I The reason I saw the poster is because um, I follow Will Smith on Twitter, not Will Smith, the actor, Will Smith, the like tech blogger and video YouTube guy. Um, <laughs> he's like goes way back. He's like tested.com. Think he used to write for Wired, and he has the Twitter handle at Will Smith. And that Disney, the Disney Plus tweet that tweeted out that show, used his Twitter handle, not <laughs> at the real Will Smith, which is, which is the actor Will Smith's Twitter handle. Um, and so then a bunch of people, because he's Will Smith is a part of the Giant Bomb, the tech writer Will Smith is also part of the Giant Bomb community, and I watch all their videos and podcasts and stuff. Um, and so a bunch of that community made mock-ups of that poster, taking out Will Smith, the actor, and putting in, like, very white nerd dude Will Smith from <laughs> Tested.com, wearing, like, VR glasses and shit like that into the poster, and it's very fucking funny. And that's why I know the answer to that question. But I have to appreciate, Jonathan, your fake title for The Rock Show, <laughs> Between a Rock and a Hard Place, is fucking amazing. So good. But that's the real one, Sean. What? No, I'm kidding. You, yeah. you got it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. See, if you didn't know about the Will Smith thing, that would have been harder, right? Yeah, no, that would have been way harder. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, it's only because I already saw that that I, yeah. I could answer that very easily. I want a rock free climbing show called Rock in a Hard Place. How do we not have that yet? I like I can fucking see it, you know, he's such a charismatic guy. Like I can just like I can just envision the like monologues of him talking about how like dangerous some like technical, you know, like this guy's going up and it's like sloping away from the mountain wall. And it's like and here he has to do the most dangerous maneuver in all of rock climbing. He has to jump away yeah. from the wall and rely on his body weight to swing him like a pendulum. Like I can just see it in my mind's eye and it would be a kick ass show. Yep. They should All right. It. Finally. <laughs> There were a few announcements of more adult fare for Hulu, including, this one has a dumb title, but it actually sounds like a good movie. They're making a movie called Prey, which is a prequel to Predator, right. that is directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane, mm -hmm. and it is set in 1719 Americas, with the Predator landing like in like um, like Native American territory. That sounds like a, the best idea for a Predator sequel ever. Yeah, yeah, this is one of the ones I saw, um, and yeah, it's a good idea. Like, if you're going to continue to make Predator movies, which I feel like that franchise has been very beleaguered since the first... It's one of those where it's like the first movie is the only one that people, like, really all agree on is good, and then some of the other ones people, like, have fans. Um, but it's like this franchise that keeps on working for wanting to have a big moment and a big good movie again, and it's not really had it. Um, so no. maybe, maybe they'll get it, you know? Yeah. But... Disney also announced a movie for Hulu called The Princess. And they gave The Princess an interesting logline com combining a 2010s action movie and an animated classic. 
Which one of these is the actual logline used on stage for the movie The Princess? Okay. Was it The Raid Meets Cinderella or John Wick Meets Sleeping Beauty? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean... I mean, it has to be John Wick meets Sleeping Beauty because I can't imagine that they're like cultured enough at Disney to make a raid reference. Um, but that's the only reason I would pick that. Like, they are equally, utterly absurd, ridiculous things that you would not imagine put together. But I'm going to guess the John Wick meets Sleeping Beauty one. You're correct. And honestly, the raid would make more sense with Sleeping Beauty because I can imagine like Sleeping Beauty's at the top of the tower and he's got to fight his way up that building, like in the raid. Uh-huh. That's what I want to see, yeah. But no, they are making a movie called The Princess that is described as John Wick meets Sleeping Beauty. I don't know the why. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like, really? Like, you can't just say that. That has to, words mean things. Like, th- does that mean the fucking, like, prince or whatever in Sleeping Beauty, like, goes and murders 30 people by shooting them in the chest and then shooting them in the head? Like, does he get in a fucking sick throwing knife fight with a motherfucker? Does he start running over people with a Mustang with the door ripped off of it? What does John Wick meets the Sleeping Beauty fucking mean? That's insane. It is insane. And this is what I mean when I say that's the last Disney Plus game. Because what else? What can I do, Sean? What can I make up that is stupider than this? And it honestly makes me wonder, what is the future of Disney Plus if they're already this far near the bottom of the barrel? If they don't start making new stuff, like, what do they make? Like, they're, when, Sean, when I made the Sword in the Stone joke, that was hard because I looked through the list of animated movies they haven't remade yet, and it's really small. Like, the most notable movie was Sword in the Stone, and the Sword in the Stone is not a notable movie. Yeah, exactly. That's a movie you only know if you, like, lived in the blockbuster era and went to rent The Lion King and all they had was the Sword in the Stone. That's the only reason you would know that movie. Yeah, like I'm looking right now at a Polygon article whose headline is Disney Plus is the princess is apparently John Wick meets Sleeping Beauty, which the word apparently does a lot of work in that fucking headline (laughs) for that article. Yes. Oh my god. All right. I think that's it for the news. Yeah. Yeah. And how do we move on from that? Like how, like you, like my sense of the world has been exploded by the sentence John Wick, John Wick meets Sleeping Beauty is such a fucking insane thing to say. And um, it had to have it God. be the correct answer to a question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if you had come up with, I think, like, almost anything other than the raid, the only reason I didn't pick the raid is because the raid is more gory than John Wick is, which John Wick is a fairly gory action series, but the raid is, like, particularly violent, and so I felt like there's no way Disney would reference that, and it's also a foreign movie, and they're racist, so, you yeah. know. Yeah. Well, uh, Sean, you win the game. Um, you did get, you got seven out of nine. That's pretty good. There you go. So there you go. You are good at guessing what Disney will do, I guess. You can. I think that. it's more that it's like just hard to come up with. I, like, I, I sympathize with you having to make fake ones because it seems like really impossible at this point. It's getting harder every day. Yeah. Okay, Sean, you want to talk some Harry Potter with me? I'm mean, not particularly, but we're going to do it anyways. So. All right. Let's get it over <laughs> with. So, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the no, movie. No, that's not the title of this. It's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. We can't do this shit. This Sorcerer's Stone horse shit. The most, like, I am offended by a lot in Harry Potter. One of the most offensive things is that this title has never been fixed. Because the Philosopher's Stone is a fucking thing. Harry Potter didn't, J.K. Rowling didn't make it up. It's like a fictional, like, mythological concept that has existed for hundreds of years. Well before Harry Potter. 
like children can handle the existence of the word philosopher in your fiction it's horseshit really the only thing here sean that if you're mad about it you can't blame jk rowling because uh she maintains to this day that she says this is the thing she would have them fix if she had the clout at the time but that was completely scholastic in america made that change without her knowledge or approval and then it just continued until on like this movie exists in two versions there is a version harry potter and the philosopher's stone where chris columbus just had to have the kids say like do two takes of all of yeah. those scenes where they say philosopher's stone um but yeah so yes i the version i watched was harry potter and the sorcerer's stone because i do not have a uk blu-ray of it um but yes it is it is it, in america it is called harry potter and the sorcerer's stone its true title is harry potter and the philosopher's stone and it came out 20 years ago today on November 16th when you are listening to this. Um, and was, you know, at the time, you will hear this in the in the chapter I read at the end of this episode. But this was as hyped for anything as I have ever been in my life. I think if you were not around then, you might not understand how big mm -hmm. Harry Potter was. It was like the Beatles, but in book form. Um, and then this movie also was enormous. I mean, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone grossed close to a billion dollars um when it was uh in theaters originally and it has since actually last year sean it got a re-release in china during the pandemic and went past a billion um just just went over it so at the time the only comparable hit to this movie was titanic there was nothing else at that level of like a billion was like ridiculous mm -hmm. it would be another two years before lord of the rings did it with return of the king and then it wouldn't be again until 2008 with The Dark Knight. So, like, this was very rare to have a hit of this size. So this is a moment of, like, immense, immense hype when this movie came out. You and I did not know each other yet because we went to different elementary schools. Mm -hmm. um, everybody, literally everybody I knew, adult, kid, whatever, saw this in theaters. Did you see it in theaters? Yes. I have seen every Harry Potter movie in theaters because it should, like... Because so my history with the series is that I read the first two books because so because this movie comes out and what Azkaban or was it already Goblet of Fire was released? Uh, on the, Goblet the of Fire is two thousand, so there had been okay. four books. Yeah, so Goblet of Fire was already out. I had read the first two books, um, and and it just didn't grab me. But like it should be known, like the books were super popular. It's like it wasn't the movie that made like the movie expanded its popularity. Yes, but the you know. I think the movie would not have made a billion dollars if it was not a decent movie. Like, it is a decent movie. Um, but, like, it was going to make a shit ton of money no matter what because of the hype from the book. Um, because yeah. the book series was so unbelievably popular. Um, and so I did read those two books, and I just wasn't particularly into it. But my brother, my older brother, really likes Harry Potter. He doesn't read a lot of books. And it's like one of, it's like that and Lord of the Rings are the only things he's, like, really, like, read and engaged with. And then my mom also likes Harry Potter. Um, my dad doesn't give a shit about it, so we are like a combined front within our family of like, <laughs> fuck this shit. Um, but because of that, and because like all of my friends, well, most of my friends, um, either like all my friends either liked Harry Potter or were like somewhat ambivalent to it. I was like the only one who like particularly didn't like it that much. Um, but you just, it was impossible not to see these movies. And at a certain point, it was like, I was like in too deep on the movies. I was like, I might as well watch the films because I... By the time I, I read A Prisoner of Azkaban later, I read that after I had seen this movie, maybe after the Chamber of Secrets movie came out, and then tried to read Goblet of Fire and realized these books are not that good. Um, they're not worth the time spent for hundreds of pages of like the size that they had ballooned to. 
And I gave up on Goblet of Fire about 100 pages in. And then after that, the movies were like the way I experienced the series kind of as like a sense of, of of both thinking the movies are fine. Like, I don't think they're terrible. I think all the most of the movies are quite decent. Um, they're enjoyable. And then it was like a way to sort of like know what was happening because it was a thing that was so inescapable. You kind of had to, when you were a kid or even into your teenage years, you kind of had to know enough stuff about Harry Potter just to sort of exist in social, like, society and culture. Um, you couldn't be at high school and talk to people without being able to know what a Dumbledore was, you know? is that kind of shit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I want to throw a number at you here, Sean. So, we talked about Dune a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how Dune, very well-selling book, right? Yeah. One of the, probably the highest-selling sci-fi, like, strictly sci-fi book in history at 20 million copies. Yep. The Harry Potter books collectively, the seven books, have sold over 500 million copies as of 2018. That was the last time we got numbers. Um, so, like, five, that's more than the population of the United States. I mean, it's, you know, there there is no actual, like, comparable success in the history of book publishing right like other than the bible yeah other than the bible um, and hotels like the hotels in america sure push those fucking bible sales up boy <laughs> i tell you what it, it was the other way around but yes um yes. they didn't buy the bibles were donated by a religious family yeah. but yes um i like the joke um so yeah i mean i i don't think anyone needs us to explain why harry potter is big we all know it I'd I need people to explain why it's big. I understand okay, that it is big. I don't yeah. understand why. I've always been baffled by its popularity, but... I Yeah, so, and I guess I should take a step back because I assume... I guess I assumed all our listeners knew this history, but then again, this is the one thing we don't talk about on this show. Yeah. So, like, maybe they don't, that that is your feelings about Harry Potter, and mine are different. Harry Potter was the thing growing up for me. Like, it was... Um, I was like the Harry Potter fan, like the, the biggest one you could find. I had all the books, obviously. I read them over and over. I really loved the audiobooks that Jim Dale read, and obviously Jim Dale's wonderful, and those those audiobooks are still the best audiobooks I've ever heard. Nothing's ever going to surpass those. He did phenomenal work on them. I, I So I listened to them over and over again. I read them over and over again. Um, saw the movies. I was super into that. I just, you know, I played many of the games, like... I was the Harry Potter fanboy, and, you know, that was throughout my entire adolescence. Um, I think after high school, I stepped, you know, after the last movie, I definitely, like, kind of closed the book on it a little bit, and I had gone back to it a little bit over the last ten years. Um, never, like, falling out of love with it necessarily, just not being, like, actively, like, obsessed with it. Um, and then I do think J.K. Rowling's... Um, turning into a terrible person over the last 10 years uh, definitely affected my relationship with it in ways that I don't, and I still don't know how to grapple with, and I don't think there's a way to know how to grapple with it, because I can't lie to you and say, no, nah, I never really liked it that much, right? Like, I can't lie to you and say it wasn't important to me, and it's not still important because it's a series that was big enough that it shaped a lot of who I am, and I've written about that, and I think there are, like, traces of the writing of these books that's in my writing style, um, you know, it, it, it captured my imagination in a very big way. It's just, it's like too much a part of the tapestry for me to like know kind of how to approach it now with my feelings about the creator of the work. It's hard. Death of the Author is a nice literary theory, but it is not applicable in the real world. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's also practical. much harder to apply when the author is not actually literally dead. Death of no. the Author is very easy to apply for like, 
HP Lovecraft or something. I mean, it's not actually because you should apply it, but like, or you should apply like some knowledge and understanding of like the person because it informs what they wrote. But it's easier to sort of put it out of mind when that person's been dead for a hundred plus years versus yeah. when that person is actively promoting and like developing and radicalizing their awful views in the world and pushing that and hurting groups of yeah. like my, you know, um, oppressed people in their country, like. Uh, Death of the author is a nice idea when it's something that you don't, when there aren't any actual negative effects going on in the real world from the actions of that author. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know. I don't, I don't have answers to that. I don't think you have answers to that. There's no, you don't have this issue with Harry Potter, but I'm sure there's stuff you like made by toxic people. <laughs> I mean, I really liked the Ender's Game novels growing up yeah. um, and not knowing anything about Orson Scott Card, who is the writer of those that series of science fiction novels, if you don't know what Ender's Game is. It's a series of sci-fi novels written by Orson Scott Card, who is like a J.K. Rowling-esque, like awful, awful fucking bigot who donates money to causes to like um, oppress. Um, particularly, it's, it's a lot of homophobic stuff. Um, but it's his bigotry is like widespread and is is hard to in some ways it is hard to sort of like take it and compare it to the stuff in his books which are like mostly about particularly speaker of the dead his second book like about tolerance but then you can when like revisiting it a little bit which i did several years ago looking at some of it being like i can actually kind of see some of where his beliefs come from even with like the weird cognitive distance between what he says and some of what his books show um, well, so yeah, and that's, that is that's, my main one. That's the same case for J.K. Rowling, and it's been something people have talked a lot about, which is that the the main arc of the Harry Potter books is about fighting like a character who's like literally coded in the garb of like the KKK and and Hitler and stuff like that. Like it's about fighting bigotry. Um, there are gaps certainly in Harry Potter, and there yeah. are things that like like I think Rowling has never been a particularly good feminist. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, there's there's certain, there, there's gaps, obviously. But, like, growing up, you know, the Harry Potter books had good messages in them on, like, the basic level of, like, who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. Um, and it just, you know, it's all of that. And it's also, like, even if for some reason you're a terrible person who doesn't care about any of that shit, um, Rowling also just beat the horse so fucking dead these last ten years with the Fantastic Beast movie and the play and all of this other stuff and just not letting it sit you know um that it you know i just have not engaged with it much i think the last harry potter thing before last night sean that i had engaged with was the second fantastic beast movie whenever that came out dad you did not like that right that was that was one of the worst movies i've ever one of the worst movies i've ever paid to see like it is like that that movie is like it's not suicide squad level bad but it's near there. It's like on the spectrum where like I think Suicide Squad is the worst. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is close to that. I would put it right. Like it's better than Amazing Spider-Man 2. But it's nearing that potential. That area. That is very bad. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. really fucking bad. Um, and Fantastic Beast 1 was fine. It was a movie. It did nothing for me, really, but it was a movie. Now um, you understand my response to Harry Potter. That is because that is kind of like it's like, yeah, this is fine, and and then and then everyone else goes insane over it, and like, what is happening to you people? Yeah, and I don't, you know, it's it's hard when you say like, why is Harry Potter big? Why do you love it? I don't know. I like oxygen. It's like it's one of those things that's like such a like just it's the it's the background radiation of the universe that I grew up in. I don't know how to explain it more than that. It's, you know, and it's something I will just say at the upfront. When when I watch any of these movies or look at the books, 
and I look at the surface of it, I, I see more than the movie. It's impossible not to. I see memories from growing up. I see my dad who read the books to me and was also really into it. And that was a big bonding thing between us. Um, you know, I, I, I see so much of my life and like my memories tied up in this. Um, there's no, I can't like stand back and look at this like a new movie. There's, there's no way for me to do that. Um, and does that color my thoughts? Probably. I, I think I'm pretty good at still being like critical and fair about movies, but there is no such thing as objective criticism. And it's really hard to even move in that direction when it's something like this, that just, like I said, it's kind of like the background radiation of my life. It's hard to grapple with. Yeah. And, and it is, I think it is like, because Harry Potter was that thing for so many people, like that is, and again, I want to make it clear that like, I don't think that it is like the worst books ever written or they're the worst movies. Like the reason why I do, I have this like instinctual backlash to them is because like it was impossible to escape. Like it, 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 if you're a kid and you're a nerdy kid and you're a nerdy kid who's into fantasy stuff and you're a nerdy kid who's into fantasy stuff who reads lots of books, but you don't like Harry Potter in fucking, if you're like <laughs> eight years old, right? And when this movie, or like whatever, like it would have been nine years old when this movie comes out. Like, I'm like a fucking, like, I'm like the fucking Loch Ness Monster Bigfoot or some shit. It's like, what is this kid who's likes all this like shit and then, but doesn't like Harry Potter and you're going to, everyone has their Harry Potter themed fucking birthday parties and it's like utterly inescapable. And I'm there, I'm like, I don't, I don't like, I like, I don't think, I'm, I love Star Wars. I love Lord of the Rings. Like, I love my superhero comic books. This Harry Potter stuff is super lame. And, and and nobody else could see it, and and it was like you just couldn't escape it, and it was kind of like impossible for not for that not to breed a certain degree of like enmity in me for the entire franchise because it was like everyone just assumed that you're way into Harry Potter, and it and Harry Potter became a like almost like with our friendship it was like the way that people you know at family dinners don't talk about politics or friendship we didn't talk about Harry Potter at a certain <laughs> no we like well, you can't, you can't talk about it because it's like. You just liked it for reasons you can't explain, and I like it for reasons that are like I understand are somewhat petty, but I but it's the way I feel, and and that bridge couldn't be divided or couldn't be I, crossed. I mean, Sean, I think back to our adolescence in like middle and high school, and in my memory, whenever like Harry Potter is broached, it seems like you were a character in like a sitcom about like the nostalgia, like the Wonder Years before the two thousands, written to be like the the fucking like grump in the group who didn't like Harry Potter, where like me and three of our other friends would start talking about it and you would like roll your eyes and like stomp away. And like then there would be the laugh track in the background. Like that's kind of like that's that's my memory of some of those like moments. And it's just yeah, like because because by that point that had been happening for six years of yes, like every conversation is about <laughs> Harry Potter. It was like it was kind of like what happened with Game of Thrones, but to like the nth degree because it's also when you're in school. So it's like everyone has the same number of like six things they can be into basically, and most people are into Harry Potter. It's like you know, there's only so much like new oxygen or whatever that's being fed into like the cultural system of of the school and childhood. Um, and so when it was just dominated by Harry Potter, you didn't like Harry Potter. It's like fucking sucks the shit that that was annoying is all hell if i were to try to just explain for a second like again 
I don't think anyone, anyone listening to this podcast needs an explanation for that Harry Potter is big. Yes. Why it was big. Like it, it, either you are sort of like me and you were into it and you love it and it's just part of the background radiation of your life or it's, it's you and you've always kind of been a little annoyed by it because it was, you were like, this thing's fine. Why is everyone talking about it so much? And then, and then it's also part of the background radiation of your life, but you're more aware of it and it annoys the shit out of you. Yes. So, it's, it's more radiation in like a Hulk gamma radiation in the sense yes. that it is just like harmless cosmic radiation. Yeah. I mean, I think for me and for the kids who were into it, it was, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. I think the books are, I think them matching the, the rhythm of a school year and being sort of fantastical while also being about the minutia of daily school life is probably the ultimate key to their like success with the demographic. I think it being a very, a truly big feat of world building. There is a lot of imagination in the story. There are hundreds of characters. There are so many corners of the universe that people like and that the movies got to exploit in different ways. And then, you know, there's lots of fanfic because of all this and whatnot. Um, you know, it's it has all the ingredients that you understand, I think, why it's a cultural sensation um, in the way that a lot of its imitators are not. I've read a lot of those imitators and, you know, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but none of them have sort of the breadth of, of what Harry Potter had. Um, but, you know, it was definitely something that was ripe for a cinematic adaptation at the time. What's funny is, I think now, if, if Harry Potter were somehow not written and it, it were written now... I don't think these would have been made as movies. I think these would be like mm. high-level streaming shows over seven or eight years. And I don't know if that would work. I actually think it would work. A lot of people have said like, oh, I'd love the Harry Potter show because then they could do everything from the books. And I think it would probably suck. I think the kids would get burned out. I don't think it would last. The f I don't think they would be able to pull it off. I think they did the right call making the movies. But I do think like, you know, this movie, and this is something I want to get into as we start to talk about it. This movie is very clearly from a different era of the entertainment mm -hmm. industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with, like, the TV show idea of Harry Potter is that, because I guess I guess to talk about, like, why specifically I don't like it, and I, like, outside of the, like, I didn't like it, and so it me not liking it then pushed me to not like it more and more because everybody else liked it so much and it was annoying. Like, the reasons were, I think, exactly for the reasons that other people like it. Like, I don't like the school year structure, I think, fundamentally. That's why I bailed on Goblet of Fire so hard. Because I, I liked Prisoner of Azkaban okay. Like, I think that movie is the best movie, from what I remember. Like, I it is. It it's forever. easily the best movie. It's yeah. the most important to the, like... Like, Alfonso Cuaron, like, left a mark that everyone else is chasing what he did, like, very, very clearly. Yeah. And and I, when I read the Prisoner of Azkaban book, probably in, like, sixth or seventh grade, which was this, like, I, I tried to give it another shot, basically, like, near the end of elementary school. And I reread the first two books, and I read Prisoner of Azkaban. And on Prisoner of Azkaban, I remember being like, you know what, this is, like, okay. And then I started reading Goblet of Fire, and it starts, and you're with the fucking... Dursleys or whatever, right? You're like back there and it's yeah. like you have to read like a hundred pages to get back to the school. And I just realized like why I'm like like I just kind of want the story and I want the characters. And when like some of that stuff ends up coming to the surface near the ends of those books, like it can be kind of interesting. But you have to get through so much what is to me very like loose, weakly plotted stuff in a setting that I don't find particularly interesting. And that, like, year-long structure, I think, is a big part of it. And it's something that I think this movie struggles with, finding a way to find a spine amidst, like, this weird structure of a bunch of 
basically unrelated events that at the end have to all be kind of contrived to be interconnected as a way to be meaningful for them to solve the series of trials they go through at the end. So like Harry Potter being able to do Quidditch stuff has to become important by the end, or you'd be wondering why the fuck did you spend like 40 minutes of this movie doing all this Quidditch type stuff, um, or however long in the book, right? Because the movie didn't necessarily invent all that stuff. And that like weird, very loose, vague plot structure I always found kind of annoying and the other thing I don't like about Harry Potter is that, and the thing that I think the reason why I never liked it is that I don't like the setting. Like, I think the world feels to me very heavily, like, kind of contrived. And so much of the fantasy setting is in this weird place where it doesn't quite commit to being a Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan-esque, dreamlike, what we would now call an isekai show or whatever, if you want to do your, like, anime thing. But this, like, portal fantasy or, like, a character who is a modern-day character, a sort of everyman-type character, getting whisked off into a fantasy-esque world, in which Harry Potter does not invent that kind of genre, right? That's, like, Narnia, that's Peter Pan, that's whatever. It doesn't really commit to the dreamlike element that is pretty inherent to that genre, um, it has elements of it with the kind of fairy tale tone, but it doesn't go all the way. And it wants to have a little bit more of that Lord of the Rings-esque, like, full, true, lived-in, immersive fantasy that is a completely separate world outside of the world that we live in, right? Star Wars, Lord of the Rings are probably, like, the two most notable examples. And Harry Potter's in this weird kind of vague space in the middle where it doesn't really have, to me, a sense of, like, history to the world. The world is kind of nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. You know, they're, they're not, like somewhere else they're in scotland for this whole movie when they're in the dark forest that's just a forest somewhere in scotland right tvs exist the internet exists cell phones exist like all those things still exist in this world because it is set in the modern world just this weird pocket of it and so there's and then quidditch the way that quidditch works the whole house setup all these pieces of world building feel really contrived to tell this kind of story and not like it exists independent of harry potter in the plot trying to be told which is the thing to me that's appealing about an immersive fantasy thing like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, where it feels like this is a fantasy world that exists outside of the context of the story, outside of the context of this character, outside of the context of me. And so I can project whatever I want onto it. And Harry Potter doesn't really have that, nor does it have to me like all like the interesting sort of semiotic stuff that your dreamlike fantasy stuff in that Peter Pan realm has. So to me, that's, I think, always fundamentally the disconnect I felt and why I've never particularly liked this series that much. And this is really interesting because I can say very definitively what you're describing is also why I think it's big for a mm -hmm. lot of people. Because the thing, the like turn Harry Potter makes and the thing that is like very British about it is that it's, it is just the real world. It is the real world and wizards live in it and they just live in secret and because they have magic and are more powerful, they've kind of are just cordoned off and they go about their lives and they have all these things that like, it's the magic world is in the real world. It is just hidden. It like the muggles can't see it. Um, they Except can't glimpse for it. it's, it's not really. I think this is my other problem is that like, cause it's not a like embedded fantasy or like id fantasy or something like a persona or fate stay night or like vampire fiction where the fantasy stuff exists hidden in secret buried beneath the real society because harry like when there when harry leaves and he goes to hogwarts right in this movie 
that's it. Like, there's no going out of there. There's no interaction with the real world. You get some of that l- a little bit as it goes on in the series, and they develop that a little bit. They do a lot with it in the in the other books. They do. That, maybe in the books. In the movies, it never comes up all that much. And, like, they, it happens more the deeper you get in. But for most of this series, there's a very clear wall. And particularly, like, with this one, there's a sharp, distinct wall between the real world and the magic world that once you cross over that you never go back and it never is really mentioned and it's not really important anymore. Um, Which makes it feel like a Wizard of Oz type thing, right? Like Harry Potter is much more equivalent to a Dorothy type character to me than the main character in an embedded fantasy type setting where they're like diving into like the subconscious or whatever by going through like whatever it is, like whatever, like vampire thing, like the nightclubs, whatever kind of embedded fantasy setting you want to pick. This doesn't really capture that, I think, dynamic for me. So I get that. I just think that, again, one of the appeals of the series for me, and I think a lot of other people, was that, like, Rowling puts a lot of, like, very finicky minutia into the books about, like, and a lot of it makes its way into the film about, like, how do wizards do, you know, X, Y, and Z, and how are these things achieved in the world, and, and where do you go to get this, and, like, the just, like, the mechanics of Diagon Alley and things like that. And I get what you're saying, but, again, I think the, like, it's I guess it's not strictly aligning to some of those other genres you're mentioning, but I do think the that it's it's in the world and here's where it's placed and the boundaries are fluid and like goes back and forth. There's a tactility to it and a like sense of the world as it exists. And I do think like I and I understand if you're just coming from the films, I would say the books have quite a bit of a sense of history to them. Um, you know, and like like one of the one of the things you said of like that it's our world with like all this technology and stuff the books are specifically set as period pieces of like the late 80s and early 90s so that rolling did not have to deal with things like cell phones um and that's like one of the, the, the that's one of the things i've always like if they ever actually did a sequel i want the world where iphones are a thing and what do wizards do about that because that what do I wizards feel like do what, about guns what if you just got shot you know, like it's what if you had a gun Britain. one? So that's why it's a like that's 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 why when Fast Fantastic Beast went to America, that's what we should have gotten was what do you do with like fucking guns? Yeah, um, there's there's a line about a gun because Ron has never heard about a gun, and that is a line in like book two or three where someone says that to him, and and Harry has to explain it's like a big metal wand that Muggles use to kill each other, um, which I think is one of the funnier lines in the books. But anyway, yeah. So what's interesting about this though, Sean, is that I think the things you're identifying and you don't like are just you just reverse it and it's the things people like about it <laughs> is is what i'm seeing here um which means we are talking about the same thing phenomenologically it's not like we're seeing just completely different stories going on here so yeah it's interesting but you know this is not a podcast about harry potter as a phenomenon i really did specifically want to dive into this movie um, because I have not seen it in a while. I have seen it many times, though. I could recite this movie. I have I saw it at least five times in theaters when it came out. I saw it many, many times on DVD and then Blu-ray and then on revival screenings and things like that. I Sorcerer's Stone is definitely one of the movies that, like, so Sean, on episode 400, you asked me what is the movie I've seen the most times. I do think it's Fellowship of the Ring. I know I've seen that probably more than Sorcerer's Stone, but Sorcerer's Stone would be in probably my top five of how many times I've seen it just because of when it came out when I was a kid and everything, right? Um, yeah. So I know this movie very well, but I really don't think I've kind of gone back and watched it with what I consider my sort of adult, mature movie eyes. Um, and certainly not for this podcast, which is always a slightly different valence. Um, and 
you know, this this movie and Chamber of Secrets often get lumped together as like kind of the not the bad ones because I don't think anyone is generally of the opinion that the Harry Potter movies are bad. They're clearly made with a certain level of like effort um, yeah. and all of that. Um, but I do think they're often viewed as like the kind of ugly stepchildren. And I've even kind of been of that opinion at times because there are problems the first two Columbus movies have that Alfonso Cuaron solved and then stay solved for the rest of the movies. Like, um, you say the first movie is kind of shapeless because it's like the books do have a more televisual narrative structure or even almost like a long video game RPG or something. Like, like the, the video games for Harry Potter 1 and 2 on Game Boy Color were just RPGs. They were yeah. Final Fantasy ripoffs. Um, and that actually made complete sense because a like year-long calendar where like you do different adventures and fight things and then at the end there's a big thing that's a very typical video game structure like it works just fine for that but as movies they definitely had trouble with these first two in figuring out what a spine was that was more filmic and then Alfonso Cuaron cracks that for film three and like goes on a very heavy like what we are doing here is we are identifying the main theme of the book and we are putting everything around that valence and it's very clear and like and that's the shortest movie up to that point and like it just really gets it and like nails in it helps that the third book is probably the best book in the series and like gives you more of that but then that is clearly how they structure the movies after that i think some of i love the production design and we'll talk about that because it is amazing but some of it is a little too maybe stayed in some places and like i think its idea of magic is somewhat simplified and then quran like kind of blows the doors off of that and allows it to be a lot weirder and then the movie's kind of allowed to do that and like the visual palette kind of opens up and all these different things but when i was watching sorcerer's stone last night honestly this is probably the most i've enjoyed the movie in over 10 years like looking at it with fresh eyes thinking about it like it's new or something and like for i think the size of the task that was in front of these filmmakers which was unbelievably immense especially i think considering the high wire act of adapting this book at this moment in time when it was that big like and, and the number of pressures that would have gone into that i mean this should have been fucking gobbledygook like in most hollywood cases this should have been like a too many cooks in the kitchen no identity nothing interesting going on here and instead this feels like it is cut from this is not as good a movie as lord of the rings i'm not going to claim i'm obviously not claiming that it is not as good as the matrix or one of those but it is cut from a cloth of hollywood that still had at that time which was that this is a big movie and we are putting in big movie effort and like literally every person at every level of like the writing and the not the direction because chris columbus is not like an auteur or anything but like the writing and the editing and the cinematography and the costume design and the production design and the music all of that it is like the biggest names in every one of those fields is going to come in the adult cast is going to be exclusively comprised of fucking legends um and then obviously the kids are going to be newcomers um but like it's a movie that was made with a lot of effort and like clearly heart and i think a lot of like just just I think the adaptation in a literal narrative sense is obviously too stoic and it makes the movie overlong and awkwardly paced in the sense of does it capture the things that captured people's imaginations in that book and made them like it? It really does. And it translates it to cinema in a, I think, remarkably effective way. And I just, I've been thinking about this a lot, Sean, as we've been doing these episodes going back to like early 2000s movies. I miss when Hollywood making an effort meant building 
a million cool as shit fucking sets and going to mm-hmm. awesome locations and casting just the best actors in the world and having John Williams do a fucking movie score. Not a couple of sounds in the background and Hans Zimmer going, Bwom, but like a movie-ass movie score. And like this is a movie that is working for your ticket money. And I just look at it and I go, I fucking miss this. Oh my God. So that's my opening salvo, and I don't know if any of that makes sense, but I'm trying. But I, that's the thing that I'll agree with you on the most, that I think, um, like, there is a a production to this movie. Outside, like, some of the CG stuff is very bad, but they, there's not a lot of it. Um, most actually, CG was very bad yeah. in 2001. And there are some pretty impressive CG shots. Like, occasionally with the dog, there's some decent stuff. There's, like, a couple of decent shots in the Quidditch thing. Like, it's not all, the CG's not all a miss. There is actually some stuff I was, like, kind of impressed by even if there were also lots of moments where, like, that is the most awful, plasticky, ragdoll-looking ass CG body yes. double I have seen, and I watched Matrix Reloaded, like, a couple weeks ago. Um, but there's also not... There's very little of it yeah, for a 150-minute movie. It's... Yeah. yeah. Um, so outside of some of that stuff, which is, like, pretty excusable, even... Although it is, you know, the fact that a month later, Lord of the Rings comes out and, like, is so much better at integrating its digital effects than this movie is, like... You know, it, 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 Lord of the Rings is at a different caliber of, like, that kind of thing. Yeah. But ignoring Lord of the Rings, which has some of the best special effects work in any movie that's been made, like, the production quality of this movie is, like, tremendous. And the sets are fantastic. The costume design is fucking incredible. The music score is iconic. You know, they got John Williams in. He did his John Williams thing. It does feel like he pulled out, like, an unused piece of Star Wars music for the Quidditch scene, which I had never noticed. But it's, yes. like, very... It's a very Star Wars action scene song, which I found very funny. But otherwise, other than that, it's a very kind of iconic, unique music score that is nice. It is kind of, like, old movie score that was popular that now as you say it like movie scores are very kind of indistinct most of the time um and yeah and then you know as you say every fucking adult actor that walks into a scene you're like oh i totally forgot that john hurt was in this movie holy shit you know it's like and they don't just come in they come in and they fucking clean house like they all give it 110 percent yeah, yeah. The, all the adult actors are legends, and then they're all like committing to their parts, even if it's like for one scene or whatever. Um, that that sense of the production of the movie is this like older Hollywood like epic blockbuster kind of thing. That yes, the Marvel movies I enjoy them, but like they don't have like the difference between this and like Shang Chi is staggering. Even if I like Shang Chi more as a movie, which I do. Like, its production is nowhere near as impressive to me as the production of Harry Potter in The Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, and, like, I just don't think you can discount that. And, like, you know, this is what I'm saying. Like, would any movie called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone have been big in 2001? Yes. But big in 2001 did not mean a billion dollars. Yeah. That was not big. That was, you're almost half, you're over halfway to Titanic. Like, huge, huge cultural impact. And you could feel it in the theater on opening night. You could feel that this movie was, like, hitting the right buttons. And, you know, I think the most boring parts of the movie is when it's just dryly reciting the book. But, you know, so much of it is more than dryly reciting the book because 
I can imagine a much more boring version of Hogwarts where you have a bunch of, like today, it would be a bunch of actors on a fucking green screen and then you would fill it in and it would be boring as shit and like you would not go to an actual castle and shoot exteriors and you know, the Hogwarts Express would not be a real train they just built and then went through the countryside with it with an actual camera like flying around it and it's just, there's all of that kind of stuff that like, if the thing people love about Harry Potter is the world, this movie gave you more than I think you could have asked for as a kid in like letting you step into that world. Um, you know, my, for instance, I'll, I'll say like my mom has always said like her favorite Harry Potter was the first one and I'll give her all the film critic reasons why, well, the one by noted auteur Alfonso Cuaron is better for this reason and this reason and this reason. And she'll say, well, the first one felt more magical to me. And it's because I think one of the decisions Chris Columbus makes that is right is that a lot of this movie is just showing off that production design mm -hmm. and that world and letting John Williams do his thing and like letting Daniel Radcliffe in, in a lot of Daniel Radcliffe's best moments in this movie is being Dorothy from Oz and walking over and like being amazed at things and inviting the audience to be amazed at things. And like that's a space that some filmmakers are very bad about. And I think that's that's a frequent thing in Hollywood today is that we do amazing things with effects and then we don't really invite the audience to feel how amazing they are. And Sorcerer's Stone does build just a lot of like time into it to just be in the world and think like, man, Hogwarts looks fucking cool. I like how this castle is old and looks like it's been used for hundreds of years and stuff like that, that like, you know, I've said this before that every, you know, every member of a, of a movie crew is a storyteller. You're the costume designer, you're the production designer, you're the, you're the school, you're the composer, you're all telling a story. And this is a movie where everything you're looking at and hearing is telling a story to you. And that's just really cool. And like, I, I think it's easy to take for granted with a movie this famous and seen and popular and frankly overexposed. But I look at it, I try to look at it with fresh eyes for this and it's like, no, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like definitely. I think it's the best part of the movie. Um, it's it's you know, to me, it's a lot better than like honestly like the source material warrants because it's usually it's like when they go have to go into like some of like the detail of the world building like actually right other than it being the like built in physically made like detail of the sets and things like that. But like you know when you then have to get to Quidditch and then someone has to explain to you well in Quidditch. Every, nothing matters except for Harry Potter, the thing that you're going to do. And that's where, to me, like a lot of the veil <laughs> of the world building collapses into shreds at your feet. Um, because it's like, well, this is like conceptually an awful idea. Um, and there is no way to make it good other than to change it or cut it. Um, and, and it's like, there's that kind of stuff of where the way they have like realized the sport of Quidditch on screen is tremendously impressive. It's too bad that 80% of that sequence has no tension because you have just been told multiple times everything that's happening is pointless until Harry sees the snitch and goes after it, right? It's like that kind yes. of stuff that like <laughs> the, the, the flaws of the source material is the thing that holds back the movie the most because the rest of the production is so well done. No, I understand what you're saying. And it is, you know, so I watched this last night. I did pick up, and I bought it used just to make sure no money was going to J.K. Rowling, the 4K Blu-ray of uh, Sorcerer's Stone, um, which I was really curious about because Sorcerer's Stone has had a weird history on home video where whatever digital scan they made in like 2001 of the, the actual, because this movie was, this and Chamber of Secrets did not have digital intermediates. They were made 
the, all the effects were printed back out onto a camera negative. Mm-hmm. So these movies existed as camera negatives. Um, whereas like stuff like Lord of the Rings did have finished digital intermediates um, that they had to rebuild from scratch for the new 4K versions. But for whatever reason, the like telescene version that they made for digital-like versions looked bad from this movie. It like had too much processing. It became very like like kind of washed out and like the the grain it's a very grainy movie and the grain like got kind of all flat and like crushed the movie and the colors got very overbaked mm-hmm. and that was true on DVD and Blu-ray. And the 4K version they just did a complete fresh scan from the negative. So they went back to the source. And so I watched this on 4K last night and like I don't think this is the disc I would say is like the best 4K demo material in the world, but in terms of like revelatory oh my god they fixed it. It's one of the best 4K discs I've seen because it looks like it did in theaters. It looks like a 35 millimeter print. It's like all of like the detail is restored. Like it's it's grainy in like the exact right way. The HDR gives it like its range of color back because I think a lot of people dismiss the cinematography in this first movie as just being kind of like warm like a Christmas card. There actually is quite a bit more going on in its color scheme and this was shot by John Seal who is a fucking legend. I mean, among other things, he, the last thing he did was Mad Max Fury Road. So, you know, the dude is a fucking giant. He won an Oscar for The English Patient. Like, you know, lots of stuff like this. Um, and it is a beautifully shot movie. Um, especially, like, not always in the effect sequences, but when it when it can be, it is. Um, and so the 4K and in HDR, it's tremendous. And it was like seeing the movie for the first time for me, again. Because, like... You could just like look at the walls of Hogwarts and like the like one thing I noticed is like the tables in the Great Hall, they put a lot of care into making those tables look like old wooden tables that have been eaten off hundreds of times. And you can see all of that little detail. So if you are a fan of this movie, that 4K disc is unbelievably good. Um, and like actually made me reassess a lot of the stuff about like the basic cinematography of the movie because I think I'd come to feel like it's just flat and like monotonal and it's not it's the movie is more than that and i'm glad that like they fixed it for this 4k version yeah i obviously did not go out to go get a 4k uh, of this movie i i thought i had a dvd of it somewhere i think i probably just purged that when we moved um right rightfully so but it is on hbo max so that's the version i watched um and yes it does like and and i by the time i started watching it i think i'd already seen that you had tweeted about the 4k thing so i had it kind of in my head of as soon as it started watching it, it reminded me of watching like 2005 Doctor Who. There's like that sort of like flat, smeary kind of look to it that, um, that, yeah, it's not the fault of the movie. It is the, I think it's one HBO Max's streaming has never looked particularly good amongst streaming to me. Nope. Um, and, and then also that's, I'm assuming that's based on the old the, master. Yeah, the old version. Because they weren't streaming it in 4K or HDR, I assume. No. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's probably... I don't think they've updated... Because, like, the Blu-rays, they've never remade with the 4K Master. The Blu-ray in the 4K set is just the old Blu-ray. So you can actually do a direct comparison, and it's, like... It's fucking night and day. Like, there is, like... There's a lot of, like, dimensionality to the compositions. It's, like... Like, clearly, John Seal's goal was, like, I'm going to show off how cool these sets Stuart Craig and everyone built are. And, like, there's a lot of good compositions i think there's like there's just that shot of john hurt in the wand section when he gets the wand he wants and he looks at harry and it's like this 
big deep shot of him framed by all the wands that's beautiful there's a lot of like color information in it um it was really cool to see again because i've even seen this in theaters on digital dcp and it looked bad so like i'm i'm just glad and it's like oh the all you had to do was go fucking scan the negative again and this is like one of the jewels in your collection warner brothers why why did it it's the thing i do like about 4k is it's forcing all of these companies mm -hmm. to like fix their bad digital versions they made in the mid 2000s but anyway that's kind of neither here nor there but i do think it's interesting but um, it is like it is I think it's the, like easily the best part yeah. of the movie to be like it's like it's it is especially because it's as we've said multiple times on these podcasts where we rewatch movies from this period it is a thing where it's like that just doesn't exist like so I mean it's not that it never exists right Dune it has this quality to it yes you know like all the faults that movie has it has this quality but most movies Marvel or otherwise have a very cheap look for in like the big Hollywood space like they just look cheap they look like it got shot and they're like the VFX guys will do it, right? And that's, like, yes. kind of what the attitude has been in movies for, like, 10 years at this point. And here, this is their experimenting with some of the digital stuff. It doesn't work out as well here as it did in something like Lord of the Rings, but they're doing it only in sparingly. And everything that, like, could reasonably be done practically, they did practically. They only do digital stuff for stuff that, like, it makes sense that you would do it for, even if I do wish there were more puppets um, the fucking chess piece scene should have been stop motion. It is a crime that that sequence is not a big stop motion set piece because it would have been fucking amazing. Um, but it, but even then, when they're not CGI, they're literal statues. Yes, like, yeah. They look when they're so just cool. the statues, it looks really good. Yeah. So it's like like there's some places they could have improved and done some other stuff. But generally speaking, like that production level of the movie is immensely impressive. And there is something about going back and watching these that it like it makes it more impressive than I feel like it was at the time because this was not a thing that was uncommon. Again, a month later, Lord of the Rings came out. Like you got movies that had this level of production at a somewhat like fair at a fair clip. Um it wasn't like once in a blue moon. Whereas now it is a like you basically have to wait for fucking Christopher Nolan or Dennis Villeneuve to put out a movie if you want to watch something that has really impressive special effects. But then you have to deal with what are in my opinion kind of like really bad story directors for like storytelling. Um so it's like you yeah. have to kind of pick or choose there. No, and, and, you know, so I was actually watching some of the bonus features today just to refresh my mind. I, I remember a lot of the production details of this movie. And uh, David Heyman, the producer who bought the rights, um, who was very prescient and, like, realized this was going to be big. And he had, I think he was, it was even something like he had read, like, a pre-release proof of the book. And, like, so he was on it as soon as he could be. But he's with Warner Brothers. And the, he says the first person they hired for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was Stuart Craig, the production designer. Stuart Craig wound up sticking with Harry Potter for all the films to date. He has done, he did the first Fantastic Beasts. I think he left the series after that, um, which is probably why Fantastic Beasts 2 looks like fucking shit. But anyway, he's done all the production design and led the art direction. He has 11 Oscar nominations to his name. Um, and Sean, I just want, I don't even have his full list of credits. Here are the movies he was Oscar nominated for before doing Harry Potter. The Elephant Man by David Lynch. Okay. Gandhi, The Mission, Dangerous Liaisons, The English Patient, and then he did Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Like, that is a fucking pedigree, and he yeah. brings it, and it's it's him, and then the set decorator is Stephanie McMillan, and I think you have, her name is Jamie Temime on uh, costumes, and just an all-star team. And, like, the, the like, just the, the, the level of, like, detail in the art direction and everything that is going on, and I think the... 
the sheer effort that is put in to make everything physical and have these actors and these kids on real sets looking at real things and and have it all be like weathered and lived in and like fully realized and that's something that i also want to note this is one of the things that i love about the harry potter movies that continues mm -hmm. all eight movies yeah. have big name directors of photography they all have Stuart craig there is more cgi over the course of the movies in part because the books demand it but they never ever ever abandon location photography and sets and like you know there's like only one major sequence i can think of that is on a fully digital set and it's at the end of order of the phoenix for very good reason but like most of the stuff is on at least partially real sets um and you know by 2011 when the last movie came out it was already this series was kind of a unicorn for its commitment to that um and i do think it's you know i think if this had been done with a lesser level of effort i don't think it would have been the hit it was and i also think it was never a pre um predetermined fact that they were going to make all seven movies like that was yeah because no, no movie series had done something like that other than like a james bond which is not serialized um they were doing it with kids like who the hell knows what if daniel radcliffe didn't want to act after age 15 there were all sorts of issues and and warner brothers did not green light the back half of the series until after goblet of fire came out like because prisoner of azkaban did a little less well in theaters um and so they're just like it is kind of amazing and i think it is part of the the like commitment to quality in the background like whatever you think of the source material as movies these were all movies made with like 110 percent effort and that yeah. really shows yeah i 100 percent agree it, it was like it was the thing that i mean i'll say i have a much higher opinion of this movie that having watched it now than i did um going into it because i hadn't seen this movie in god knows how long i mean the last time i would have seen this movie is like it on like probably just like network tv you know like yeah. it was like in that my brother was watching it and i was like well i might as well sit here and watch it too like because that's honestly my biggest memory of the movie i know i saw it in the movie theater because i saw it with my brother and my mom but i don't have any specific memory of that because i wasn't personally hyped for it. i was like sitting there waiting for fucking lord of the rings to come out um right. and being like oh i guess i'll have to watch this thing too um so my main memories of the movie is it just being on in the background at our house constantly because harry potter was just one of those things that my brother would just kind of take over the main tv in the main living room and turn to whatever harry potter movie was on and most of the time eventually by the time you're at like the fifth movie or something my brother is in high school and he's not at the house all the time but when this movie was out it was just on all the time so that's kind of my general memory of the movie and i haven't watched it probably since i was like 11 maybe 12 years old um, and watching it now, while I still don't particularly like the main story, while I still think the main characters are very boring, um, I, th I think that, like, the production of it is very impressive. And I think that there are moments and scenes in the movie that do actually land quite well because, there, as you're saying, there is so much effort going on by everybody involved to try to make the best thing possible. Um, even if, for me, the, the fundamental source material isn't interesting, like, that effort does pay off in a lot of places. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've seen a lot of the imitators of, of Harry Potter. I've, you know, a lot of them were not made with this, this level of investment, yeah. you know. Um, none, of, none of them were made with this level of investment. That's that's an easy, that is just an obvious fact. Yeah. Um, the closest would probably be like the first Hunger Games, which has some decent stuff in it. But, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So... Let's let's talk about the movie a little broader. I think it was probably good to just start with that it fucking looks cool because it does. But like, um, 
I'm sure. Do you want to like kind of tackle how it tackles the story before we move on to like some of the acting and stuff? Because I think there's actually a lot to break down with the acting, but I think it's probably easiest just to get some of the story stuff out of the way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just curious from your end. Like, you don't really care about the story as a movie. How do you think this movie lands at like telling a two and a half hour story? Not great overall. Like, it's got moments that work for me. I think the problem is that like the spine of the movie is very hard to find. Um, and again, I think some of this is just like the nature of the source material. It has this weird plot structure of it's a lot of it's introduction and it's a lot of setup. It's a lot of here's a bunch of sort of seemingly uninterconnected events like the Quidditch stuff or whatever that you spend a lot of time on without it ever being particularly clear what it is building towards or like what is like what is our climax going to be like what is our antagonist and it's like it's around the quittest thing is where it starts to get in on the like oh snape seems to be kind of up to something weird um and that's like the most clear plot the movie has for most of it um is that snape's doing something weird um but stuff of like the uh quirrell right the actual bad guy who is possessed by voldemort like that character is not particularly well set up for a way to like for it to be revealed that he's actually the bad guy is not an interesting moment in the movie right it's 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 kind of honestly feels like it comes a bit out of nowhere because there's only one there's like two moments he's in the background of the quidditch scene where you he later fills in that oh i was doing bad stuff i was i was actually casting the spell and then there's snape confronting him in the hallway but he doesn't have any relationship with the main characters in any way so that like a lot of stuff like that just kind of feels like the movie doesn't have a clear focus it's not building to so to a particularly strong conclusion the end of the movie of harry defeating voldemort is a very thrown off like you basically just got plot armor so you win kind of ending that like there's this these vagaries of him discovering and rediscovering his parents' love or something that is kind of there, and it's kind of what the movie gets in on, and it's what Richard Harris ends the movie with, is that speech to Harry, or more or less ends the movie with. Um, but it's so thin throughout the movie that, like, I think in that sense, it just doesn't work for me. It, it doesn't have a clear idea of the specific story it wants to tell. It's more interested in sort of futzing around in this world, and then the movie ends at the end. You're not wrong. And, you know, like, it works, all works better for me because I like the story being told and I'm more invested in it. But I do think, like, as a, as a screenplay, you know, Steve Cloves, who wrote all but one of the movies, um, is a really good screenwriter. He's someone who's just very respected in the industry. I think his work is very good on the page. Uh, but obviously, the quality of his screenplays also kind of depends with the Harry Potter movies on how much he was allowed to, like, do with them, you know? Yeah. And I think this first movie, you can kind of feel the, like, the checklist effect of, like, well, we, we have to do Quidditch because a Quidditch this is a big thing in the book. We have to do um, a scene with Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, even if we're not actually doing the entire plot line with the dragon. So there's no reason to do that scene um, because that, that dragon is in a whole subplot in the book that is cut. But we have to at least have him make his cameo. So we have to do this scene. There's just a lot of, like, hit all the, like, the, the kids are going to be expecting this, this, and this. And so it is a very slavish adaptation to the book that I think the structure of the Harry Potter books, I understand why you're not super into them, but it's the kind of structure that can work much better in a book than in a movie, right? Like yeah. you can get away in a book. Not everyone's going to love it, but you can get away with a loose narrative structure in a book like this because you read it at your own pace and it you know takes time and all of that. Um, 
and you can give it as much detail and time as you want because you know you have all the pages um in a movie you do have a limited amount of time i think a better version of this movie would have uh set a harder time limit for itself because yeah. two and a half hours is too long for what's probably going on in this plot and i think the thing is i i know sorcerer stone inside and out and i can totally see where you could make a better like clearer two-hour movie out of it um it's very obvious to me where i would make nips and tucks and not and there's like obvious ones where like there are just events i would skip over like i think the entire convoluted set of scenarios that gets them into the forbidden forest for that set piece all of that should be cut like there's no reason to do the forbidden forest stuff all the information that is conveyed there you could find a different way to do it and then you could because already there is i don't know if you noticed this sean and i know you don't know the book as well but like the reason why the kids all get detention and have to go in the Forbidden Forest is very weird in the movie. It's just that they're walking around. There's a whole subplot in the book that, like, they are found at the, it's with the dragon and they're at the top of the tower and they've broken all these rules and all this shit has happened. Um, and it's it really just feels like it's because, well, people expect to see the centaur in the forest, so we have to do it. I would cut that. But even more so than just, like, what things would you cut... I think there's pretty obvious restructuring you can do. There is a theme you can hang your hat on with Sorcerer's Stone, which is that it is Harry Potter begins the book feeling like he has no family and no home, and he ends the book feeling like he has a lot of family and a very real home. And the movie is very clearly aware of that because of the moment it chooses to end on with Hagrid and Harry and all of that. Um, and, and like Dumbledore's speech and the primacy it's given but like you could whittle all of that out much clearer because oh, yeah. you have sorry what I was said oh yeah like I'm 100% yeah. agreeing with what you're saying yeah. yeah yeah because you have like the mirror of Erised scene in the middle which I actually think they do pretty beautifully in the movie it's, it's that's a very... the best that's the best scene in the movie like I think that's yes. easily where the movie feels like most like it's capturing what it like what I think Harry Potter at its best can be um, is that scene of him looking to the mirror. There's there's a really clunky piece of dialogue in the Ron sequence, but then Dumbledore comes in. Um, yeah, and yeah, like like that sequence I think was my favorite part of the whole movie. It's beautifully done, and it's it's probably Daniel Radcliffe's best moment in this movie. I think Richard Harris is beautiful there, and it gets to a lot of the themes, and it's positioned right in the movie. It's like our middle point. Um, and then, of course, the ending of the movie is also about that mirror and about the, like, the actual traces Harry's family has left him. And, like, the way you make the plot armor not feel like plot armor is to really root it in the theme that it's trying to actualize, which I think works works better in the book because it's actually explained after the fact. Harry, it, the books are told from Harry's POV, so he passes out during that sequence. And then it's revealed sort of what happened. Um, they have to make it into more of an active action scene in the movie. And that's where it just feels like very plot armory and kind of out of nowhere. Um, but I think if you whittled out a lot of the extraneous stuff and honed in on moments like that, you can make a movie with a really clear arc. I think Chris Columbus is actually very on the wavelength of what the arc is. He gives Radcliffe several moments. Like there's that scene also after he gets to Hogwarts the first night and he's sitting in his dormitory looking out the window and just sitting with the emotion of like feeling accepted somewhere. It's a beautiful little moment. And there's several of those. And I think if you could kind of like take take the statue and just like cut off some of the pieces so you have like a, a leaner, better image, it's there. It's not impossible. It probably was impossible in 2001 to, to get that past all of the hands it needed to get past, you know? Yeah, because there is a sense of like, 
you know, the, the the books being as popular as they were is both like a boon and like a curse on this movie because it is both like it wouldn't have the budget and the prestige and wouldn't be able to get every fucking British actor in the world in it if it wasn't the like biggest thing ever. Um, but also the fact that it's so huge means that like for the movie's sake unto itself, it can't or it or for whatever like process couldn't happen to get it to cut out and like focus down because it is like there's just no reasonable explanation from an artistic perspective why this movie would be two and a half hours again it's like a 200 page children's novel it is like and that's fine like it's fine this is like a kid's movie and that's there's nothing wrong with that but it shouldn't be two and a half hours long. Like you could do a much leaner movie that gets across all this stuff and is significantly better and more poignant. Um, but it kind of like, it's just wants to fuddle around way too much in random, random adventures that sort of vaguely matter by the time you get to the end in a way that feels very like, contrived. It does kind of feel like you're binge watching the movie. <laughs> Uh -huh. Like, if you do it in one sitting, it's like, ah, you watched a season of the, the Harry Potter show, sort of. And it's, you know, better produced than the Harry Potter show would be. But, like, there is a very episodic quality. Which, you know, it's a children's book that, like, you know, as a kid, my parents read to me one chapter a night. The episodic yeah. quality is a real strength of those books in the early going. And it's one of the reasons why they got big. But it does become harder in a movie. And you see exactly where in Prisoner of Azkaban, Alfonso Cuaron slashes through the script and like says okay everything we're doing has to be on theme and plot and it is just like and i would recommend if you're at all curious sean like what is the better version of like doing this and making it cinematic you know revisit prisoner of azkaban it's the one that does that best um i think of all of them and, and i think four five and six i'll do it to varying degrees too um but it's it's the third is the one where they they, they pull it off the best um and so, yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's not like the movie is just a complete laundry list. I think it does have an awareness of where the heart of the movie should be. But then you do feel like, and I even think there's just some scenes that feel like they're done out of obligation. And I don't think yeah. you feel the same passion in there, right? Like, you say the Mirror of Erised scene is one of the best because I feel like everyone involved agreed like this is a, like any adaptation of this book needs this scene. The Quidditch scene, I think, is technically impressive in a lot of ways it does feel like we have to do this because the people are expecting it. It doesn't feel like one of the great action sequences that is made because people had unbelievable ideas. They just had to commit to the screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it's like the Quidditch thing, I think is just like real weight on this movie because it just kind of, none, nothing about it makes any sense. Like why Harry's so good at it is just sort of, he just sort of is why the rules of the game are what they are is very dumb and hurts it as like a thick of action sequence because it robs it of tension it then happens and then it nothing about it comes up again until you have like oh and now all of a sudden here's a room with a broom and a little shiny golden thing that you have to go grab that just happens to be one of the trials it just happens to be the only thing that harry potter has been good at in this movie even though he didn't do anything to get good at it he just was kind of randomly good at it for no real reason um, and it's like that, it just feels like so contrived to get all that shit across. Um, which to be fair, I think a lot of that is just like a flaw of the source material of where like the sport of Quidditch is contrived to like give primacy to the protagonist in this really awkward way that like hurts this movie also that it can't like 
do something more interesting with it or tie it, either cut it out or change it up and tie it in in some more meaningful way. I mean, I guess his he sees the trophy that his dad also was a seeker is like the closest it gets. But even that is like, that's a that's a that's a lot of fucking shit to put in your movie to get that little moment across, you know. It is, and and like, yes, Quidditch Quidditch has issues in the source material. That's absolutely true, but it was always a headache for the filmmakers because Quidditch is the thing that is like most tied in the books to the seasonality of the story. Mm-hmm. That you say like it never comes up again. It does in the book because it's a sport that Harry practices. And, like, has a team, and the teammates are all characters, and they're in a tournament, so, like, they're they're thinking about winning and losing and all of that. Um, and J.K. Rowling herself eventually gets bored with it, and it in the fifth and sixth books, it kind of sucks how she deals with it. But, like, even if the rules are fucking stupid, and I don't know any Harry Potter fan who would not tell you the rules are fucking stupid, like, they are, that's just the truth, obviously, um... And I do think there's something in the books that comes across of this sort of dry British wit where it is, there's all these other layers of rules to Quidditch and the way people are into it feels a little satirical in almost like a Douglas Adams way where like, I think of like Douglas Adams making fun of cricket in the third Hitchhiker's Guide book and like, as like a stupid overcomplicated sport. Yeah, Um, I think the problem with that is that like hurts the like investment to me in like this fantasy world when it's like, but here's the sport that everyone's into and it's like a, because I agree with you, I think it is intended kind of as a gag and I think in the first thing it works okay in that context in the first book because the first book is not necessarily written with like the knowledge of I'm going to, this is going to be the biggest fucking children's novel written in a hundred years and it's going to get all these sequels and movies and everything. So then once Quidditch then must become an important cornerstone of this franchise and it's based on like a light gag is rough to say the least yes no no it is and and jk rowling herself has talked about like she feels like quidditch became kind of a weight on the books that she didn't know how to deal with at a certain point and you know yeah that's it's it's not something that you would write in the first book if you knew what harry potter was going to become i don't think yeah um but you know lots of things would be different if you knew um so anyway um yeah it's there's there's stuff like that in the movie i think you know i think it plays well enough for me i definitely can obviously the, the pacing issues are obvious this is a but i also know that going in so like this is a movie where at the hour mark, I went and took like a 20 minute intermission and did some other things. And I knew where I was going to do that. <laughs> it's just, you know, cause I know this movie so well. I didn't realize yeah. this movie was two and a half hours long until that fucking search bar came up and I saw how long it was. I'm like, Oh fuck. I, th- I could have sworn it was a two hour long movie. I could have, if you had asked me, I would have sworn to you this. There's no way it's absolutely, it's like two hours, which is still going to be too long, but it's going to be two hours. And I saw it was two and a half hours. I'm like, what the fuck? I didn't remember that at all. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the first two Harry Potter movies are the longest. Chamber of Secrets is the longest. It's almost three hours. Um, and uh, all of these problems we're saying, by the way, Chamber of Secrets has way worse. Like, uh-huh. Chamber of Secrets has a more propulsive main plot because of the mystery of the chamber. The problem is that they still don't do any of the whittling down to that plot so that it feels even more bloated. And, like, that second movie... And it, it has very much, like, sequelitis syndrome. It kind of feels like the... In the Chris Columbus connection, it feels like the Home Alone 2 uh-huh. of Harry Potter. Um, and, yeah, Chamber of Secrets should have been like a 110-minute movie, and it's 160-something. Um, there's an extended cut of Chamber of Secrets that I think broaches three hours. Um, it's That has to be more it. minutes than there are pages in that fucking book. 
Like that's madness. Oh man, it's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, so anyway, like yes, the first two are too long, and they recognize that because none of the others. I think four and six get near two and a half hours, but like those are also like seven to eight hundred page books, and like kind of warrant it. Um, Goblet of Fire, honestly, shot probably should have been longer for the story it's telling because it has like one of the most propulsive stories in the fucking novels. Um, and it kind of gets gets butchered a little bit. But anyway, um, yeah. So I want to talk about some of the actors, Sean. Um, particularly the kids. Because I, I'm i curious what you thought about this. Because I know, I have remembered you complaining to me in the past about how much you fucking hated the kids in this movie. Is that still how you felt? I, they're better than I remembered. I think it is still, I think it's hard for the movie that like it has to have all three of its main characters be played by children uh because there are moments where they're very impressive and there are moments where they're not and it's like and i feel like i'm more charitable now because i'm an adult and like i think when i was a teenager like the clunkiness in places of some of the performances um hurt like i think rupert grant is the one who absolutely is the best of the three to me in this movie like i think he really kind of nails um the ron's like character and his kind of role and he feels the most natural i think emma watson and daniel radcliffe both do very good jobs i want to make it clear like i i don't i'm not saying that like they're bad it's like they're kids right and you don't get a child actor who can give a really great performance is like a incredibly difficult thing to find and like a kid that can hang a fairly dramatic like your movie on with a fairly dramatic performance like that's a hard fucking thing to get um so i think that they do really good jobs but it is like every once in a while you get like scenes that to me feel very clunky. Um, like the, there's a, that with that middle scene with the mirror, there's this piece of dialogue. And honestly, this might not even be fucking damn right. It's such a bad piece of dialogue where Rupert Grant is, or Ron is looking at the mirror and saying, Oh, does this show us what our future is? And then the camera zooms in on Harry and he goes, how can <laughs> yeah, it? I My you. parents are dead. It's like, and, you know, that line delivery is fucking terrible. But to be fair to Daniel Radcliffe, that is such a fucking thudding, awkward, bad piece of dialogue. There should have been no dialogue in that scene. There so desperately should have been nothing. I don't know if that was in the books or not. I don't know if that was, like, a line of dialogue they added so that, like, the dumb kids in the back of the theater would understand the emotion of the scene of Harry being sad that his parents are dead. Which is the thing I think you communicate pretty easily. You don't even need an actor to be trying to act at that emotion. Just the context of the scene would have delivered it with the slow camera zoom and pushing on Harry. Um, that, like, you get moments like that across these movies. That is, like, easily the most, uh, like, thudding one. Where I think it kind of, the believability of it breaks down a little bit. Because the acting is a little bit, like, kind of choppy and awkward. Because they're kids. And it's like, it's not really the movie's fault. Um... But I do think it is it is there. Like, it takes me out of the movie um, every once in a while when I become very conscious of this is like an 11-year-old trying to read this script out to me, basically. So here's... here's I have a whole thing about this that I can explain. Okay. It is the, it is the movie's fault. Okay. It's Chris Columbus's fault. And I... This is not just me back-reading in. I know Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson in particular are really good actors. Like, and I do. I think at this point we know that. Uh, Rupert Grant kind of fell off the face of the earth after the last Harry Potter movie, but he was great in all of them. Like, Ron in the movies is so much better than Ron in the books. Like, Rupert Grant made that character so much more likable. Ron is such a fucking putz in the books, like, especially after Sorcerer's Stone. Rupert Grant did a lot with it. But anyway, I, I you can backread, and I do know those those actors are good. 
there, I will 100% agree with you that the acting of the kids is awkward and wooden in places in this movie, but I don't think it's the kids because okay. with any child performance, with any child performance, I don't care how good it is, the director is responsible to some degree, to some very big degree for how good or bad it is because kids can't act consciously the way adults can, right? Like it's just not a skill that a nine-year-old is going to have the way Alan Rickman does, right? You know, yeah. there's actual training involved. And these were not, like like Emma Watson and Rupert Grant had never acted before stepping onto the set of Harry Potter. And Daniel Radcliffe, I think, had done two things. Um, so this was new to all of them. And here's the thing. I So Sean, obviously I know this movie better than you do. I have seen it many times. I have studied it. I have thought about it very closely. If you look at this movie closely, and I would, if you haven't like rewatched it yet, watch it and think about what I'm about to say because it'll blow your mind. The big limitation of Chris Columbus's style with the kids in this movie is that he mostly shoots everything with the kids uh, interacting with each other or with adults in really strict shot reverse shot formations mm -hmm. where all the big line readings and reactions the kids have to give, all the big moments of acting the kids have to do are separated into discrete shots so that they can be joined together in editing. And this isn't just me pulling this out of my ass. He says this in one of the bonus features, talking about, like, it's hard to direct kids. And look, I sympathize with the guy. He has to direct a lot of kids in this movie, and sometimes they're the only ones on screen, and that's rough. But, like, he talks about how he, had, he, he kind of, like, broke it up so that, like, you could focus on an emotion, and then you could all kind of cobble it together in editing. But the problem is that frequently you have these phenomenal actors like Robbie Coltrane and Richard Harris and Alan Rickman and what have you. And you're actually rarely getting real energy between them and the kids because they actually don't share the screen. They share the space in the editing so your mind doesn't think about it necessarily. But they're not literally sharing the space. It's all done in sides. And you can feel, I think, the artificiality of how it's sort of stitched together where it's almost like you have a bank of like reactions from the kids. And so Alan Rickman will say something mean to Harry, and then you cut to the Harry-looking sheepish reaction, or something like that. There's a lot of this with Hagrid early in the movie, and there's an extra layer of technical difficulty there because they had to shoot Robbie Coltrane differently to make him look really big. This is definitely um, feels like, from what I remember, the most the movie's committed to... Because Hagrid, I feel like in the movies, his size is incredibly variable because he's supposed yes. to be, he's like a half-giant or whatever, right? So it's like, this yeah. is the movie that feels like it goes hard into they want him to be clearly a half giant in basically every single scene which i respect but also as you say it's going to have some like awkward limitations in terms of what you can do yes then. it does but the the way i'm trying to say it here is that i think columbus is kind of afraid of the kids he's afraid of letting it be a little more spontaneous and i think that holds the movie and the next one back because the kids can feed off the energy of the adults in the room, and it's also how they learn. This is actually one of the things Alfonso Cuaron did. It's major change in Prisoner of Azkaban is there's just way more shots that are a kid and an adult in a screen, in a shot together, acting off each other with a lot more spontaneity. And Daniel Radcliffe has directly talked about how much, particularly working with Cuaron, and with Gary Oldman in movie three, like he did not want to act as an adult until he did that in Prisoner of Azkaban. And it like completely changed his outlook. And I think it makes them, you just see how that makes them better actors because that's how this kind of thing works. And there are moments in this movie that proves it to me. There are moments where I think accidentally the movie catches the kids being spontaneous 
and they're beautiful little moments. Like there's this one shot where it's in the hut where the Dursleys have gone. It's where Hagrid comes in, right? Uh-huh. Um, on the like sea, like there's that cliff in the middle of the ocean. Um, and and there's the shot where Hagrid pulls out his umbrella wand and shoots Dudley with it and makes the pigtail. And if you watch, and the, the way that shot is framed is it's Hagrid is on the left, Dudley is on the right. You have Daniel Radcliffe kind of small next to Hagrid in the middle, and then you have the two Dursleys. And Radcliffe is in the middle of the frame, and if you look at him, he's looking back and forth at at um, Richard Griffiths and Fiona Shaw as the Dursleys, and Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid, and he breaks. He's laughing before Harry would be amused by this, before the pigtail has come. So what he's reacting to is he's got these big three adults who are all like British screen legends giving this very funny big performance, and he's having this kind of spontaneity with it. That's what the movie needs more of. It needs that kind of... It doesn't need the kids constantly breaking, but it needs a little more of that energy that feels less corralled into shots. There's another one where um, they're doing the broomstick practice and Ron gets hit in the face with the broom. And the follow-up shot of that is a good full shot of Harry and Ron in the frame together. And Radcliffe is just laughing like a real little kid. Mm-hmm. And Grint breaks. He, he get, doesn't get the line out right. And it's perfect. You want more of that. And I feel like... You know, Chris Columbus is not a great movie director. He was on something of a hot streak when this movie came out, and that's why he was hired. But I think there's a reason he generally hasn't worked much since the Harry Potter movies. Um, I think he made a lot of... I think these are the two best movies he ever made, and I think he made a lot of good decisions in these movies. But, like, I do think his big limitation is... I think he was... People thought of him as being good with kids because of Home Alone. And I think the thing in Home Alone is he had Macaulay Culkin, who is that rare kid who can, yes. like, lead a screen. But also Macaulay Culkin is alone that whole movie. Yeah, so you don't say. have these problems. Yeah, that Macaulay Culkin, like, Home Alone... It, I mean, one, Home Alone is, like, not an amazing movie. It's fine. Like, it's, yeah. it's a decent little family movie. But yes, Macaulay Culkin, like, was a really, like, natural, like, child actor. Um, and, as you say, he was, as the title tells you, he was alone. Um, so yeah, so it's like, I think that's what makes that work. And yeah, I had not noticed the shot versus shot thing, but as soon as you just said that, like it does immediately put into perspective for me that I think that is one of the main reasons why there is this like awkward, like you can feel this wall between the kids and the adults in the movie. And the only time it comes down to me is in like the two big Richard Harris scenes, which are the which is the mirror scene in the middle of the movie and then his scene with harry in, at the bed at the end of the movie is the only time i feel like there's like a connection between the or i guess and some of the stuff with hagrid some of the stuff with hagrid is decent yeah. um but the rest of it of like snape and mcgonagall and quirrell like some of it is i like a little bit of a writing thing with quirrell that i think they needed to make that character more important because he's very important in the climax of the movie um but those characters feel like they exist in different spaces because they do they exist into in different shots and they don't get to feed off of each other they don't get to have like the share that energy in the same space and so there is this like feeling of i'm watching the kid movie and i'm watching like the adult movie right not like it's not a it's not an adult movie but i'm watching the movie with the adults i'm watching the movie with the kids and they're kind of two different movies that are being edited together in some way yeah, and, and like that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, there are... Because I also think the like slavishness to Rowling's prose also means that Columbus doesn't let the kids play to their strengths as much. 
Daniel Radcliffe in this movie, you 100% see why they cast him. There are yeah. moments, particularly when he gets to be silent and reacting to things. And like being an actor, like in a moment playing an emotion, he's really good in some moments in this. I'd forgotten like his scene where he's looking out the window that I mentioned, the scene we've talked about with the mirror of Erised. And I think both scenes with Richard Harris, which is by far the most Columbus ever lets anyone, any of the kids in this movie play off an adult actor. Like, he's great in those scenes. That is, like, best-case scenario for a child actor in a lot of those moments. But, you know, I think any director will tell you this. I've heard this so many times. So much of directing kids is taking risks and, like, being, like, comfortable in the risks that involves and letting it be a little spontaneous and kind of making it play. Steven Spielberg is really good at this, if you look mm -hmm. at stuff like E.T. Um and I don't think Columbus had that in his DNA. And I think you feel the artificiality of it. Here's here's two more really good examples, Sean. You remember the moment where... So Harry has the thing where he fights Malfoy in the air to get the remember all back? Right, yeah. And then... Yeah. And then he flies back down and he's got the ball and he's like doing it. Do you remember how awkward it is in that shot where as he descends, you can fucking basically, you don't literally hear it, but you can basically hear all the kids on the ground being cued because for the first couple seconds of that yes. shot, they're uh -huh. all standing still and then they all just start running and going, yay, at once. That's what I mean by the the like the mechan the the mechan mechanality of I'm trying to say like the the it's the so mechanical, mechanical nature of it yeah that the mechanical it is, nature it, of it yeah yeah it's it's it is okay you hit this beat and now kids cue the kids okay and now then McGonagall you come in and yeah there's like a like yeah. there's a stiffness to and like a procedural element and that is a good one of where it like especially because it feels you know you could have it be somewhat mechanical and work as long as it like. The, where it's mechanical is outside of the frame but it is exactly. like yeah like the timing and everything is slightly off because he's like trying to he's trying to um, like control it too much or the movie's trying to kind of control that too much um because yes i noticed that of where he's coming down and it just feels like it like it's a beat or two too late when the kids start reacting um that does feel like they were just sort of given a cue right there which i'm sure they were to go yeah now celebrate yeah. yay well Harry. And some of it is that, and some of it is just I think the editing is too loose in places. Like there are moments where he gets good reactions out of the kid, or the kids, but I think it's edited wrong. Where like we come in like a half second before the reaction uh -huh. starts, and then you see Daniel Radcliffe very mechanically going into "you're amazed now" mode, right? And it does, doesn't always work. And I think you could probably fix it in editing, but they didn't. But you probably don't want to rely completely on editing for it. I think you want a little more spontaneity. And the big thing... And, and Alfonso Cuaron had it a little easier because the kids were a couple years older. Yeah. But they were still kids in Prisoner of Azkaban. They're like preteens. Um, but he, he just directs them like actors. And I think all the other directors after this just directed the kids like actors. And I think that's, that's the thing that Columbus had trouble with here. And so that's what I mean when I'm saying I do think it's actually the movie's fault. I don't think it's the kids' fault. Because I never really feel that inclined to blame a kid for their performance. Um, you know, say, You've say convinced me. This, this movie is worse than I thought it was. Thank you. Okay. Well, Sean, <laughs> that is my present to you. It's your birthday in like a week. So, yeah. so there you go. I was um, trying to be very polite to the movie, but you're right. It is the movie's fault. But the fucking adult actors, Sean, yeah. they're, oh my God. And we're not, we're in the first movie. We're like, there's so many more that they're going to add. But everyone in this movie is great, right? Like, it's yeah. not just me. It's every actor who comes in just kind of cleans up and then, like, exits stage right. It's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it, it is, it's almost distracting to a certain point of where you're like, oh, right, yeah, nope, you legendary actor of stage and screen, uh, you are also in this movie, you get a great moment, and yeah, it is, yeah, it is a, it is a absurd laundry list that then obviously gets bigger and bigger as the movies go on, um, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just hit a couple of them. I think, I think the two best performances, uh, let's go three, I think Richard Harris is Dumbledore, yeah. Robbie Coltrane is Hagrid. And especially Alan Rickman. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Harris, there's a lot of sadness tied up in it because he died after Chamber of Secrets and never got to see the character through to the end. Um, but, you know, he's... And I and I don't... I, I've always wondered if he would have been perfect for Dumbledore in the later books. He's definitely perfect for book one and two Dumbledore, who is the mysterious figure on the side who comes in and gives the final speech in both of those books. I think Michael Gambon was more of a natural fit for the Dumbledore who is an active player in the plot. But man, Richard Harris, this was, you know, he was a legend, most probably famous for Camelot, but he did a bajillion things and he's great in these movies. What can you say? It's so he does kind of feel like he just walked out of the pages of the book into this movie. Yeah. This is the part of the movie that I've always remembered really liking um, is yeah. I, there's something about this characterization that it's, it's, it doesn't. The character doesn't feel like a Gandalf knockoff, which it very is very easy, I think, for Dumbledore too. Um, uh, and there's something about just like this very natural warmth to the performance um, that I love. I do think there's a little bit of awkwardness with watching this movie as a teacher. Like the pedagogy at Hogwarts is a fucking utter disaster, and Dumbledore <laughs> is a big part of it. Um, like his the whole thing he does at the end of this movie is a complete utter fucking teacher nightmare of the way he does the point (laughs) shit it's awful it's so fun he is a complete fucking piece of shit that is ruining the lives of one fourth of the children at a school um is like pushing them to be weird wizard hitlers um and and the and the movie is not aware of that at all it's like this is so fun and whimsical and i'm like this is terrifying um Dumbledore don't care i love dumbledore and don't give a fuck mode and richard harris has a twinkle in his eye in that scene that is so fu- he knows how fucked it is and he plays it and i love it yeah uh you know it's it's horrifying like i can't it's just he's you know he deserves to get fucking killed you know it's just like what the fuck you do at dumbledore you are an <laughs> awful teacher in principal at the school um effectively principal um but richard harris is yeah like there's a just like it, it's just this like most warm grandfatherly performance you could get um and it it just Every time he's on screen, which he doesn't, he's not in the movie that much. Like, he, I, I remembered him being in this movie more than he is. He only is only in like a couple of scenes. Um, but when he's and that's there, that's true to the book. Every scene it. he's in is from the book. They didn't yeah. cut a line of Dumbledore from this movie. Um, well, they did cut his funny line at the beginning of the feast where he he has his four words that are nonsense. But um, yeah, I, he's great. I think I think I think the final scene with him is my favorite. But yeah. I also do love the mirror of Erised scene and. Um, it's it's I love how he kind of Socratically gets like Harry to realize what's going on and um it's a lovely moment. There's there's a real he gets the kind of like gentleness of Dumbledore in a really beautiful way that I think people responded to at the time and always missed a little bit in Michael Gambon, who plays sort of a harder edged version. Some of that being I think how he's written and directed. I think he could be more gentle when directed that way. 
I'm looking at here, Sean, at other people who were almost cast. Did you know they did offer the role to Christopher Lee, um, but he wasn't able to do it for scheduling reasons? Um, I think we know what those scheduling reasons were. Fucking Sarah Man. Well, Probably it would have time would have been maybe well maybe with reshoots. Maybe that with reshoots, been, yeah. yeah. He would have already shot. Principal photography would have been done. Um, but yeah, the thing is, Christopher Lee actually would have survived the Harry Potter run, and I uh-huh. I do kind of wonder what the alternate universe would have been where Christopher Lee was Dumbledore in seven movies, because I can see it. I, Christopher Lee is known as like villainous, but I could see a version of that working. I think it would be a more it would lean into kind of the mysterious side of Dumbledore more, but it's not like I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah, like it, it would have been very interesting to see because particularly like at that, I mean, he's he'd always been typecast as villains, but particularly at that point in his like late latter career as Dooku and Saruman, um, yeah. you had like him playing two like the most iconic villains roles, whatever in like current movies coming out, um, that him being in another franchise but then being as like the grandfatherly um like heroic figure it would have been interesting yeah um i you know i think ultimately they were right to not use a lord of the rings actor i think that would have been the wrong choice here but uh my favorite story about richard harris in this movie is that he was bullied into taking the part by his granddaughter who told him harris said i don't want to i'm old and sick (laughs) and his granddaughter said she would never speak to him again so he did it (laughs) i think that's a great little production I mean, I'll say, like, you know, I think the ending of this movie overall in terms of, like, its plot mechanics is, like, incredibly weak and anticlimactic and disappointing. And it is, like, a miracle that it works at all. It's only because of Richard Harris. Like, Richard Harris delivering those lines about, like, it's a mother's love and all of that. Any other actor, and I would have just been like, fuck this shit. Richard Harris doesn't, I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah. Like, all, okay, fine. Like, it's not great. It's a very awkward sequence of events and you're trying to like justify it this way it's like mm, i don't know it's weird uh but richard harris i'll buy it from you so robbie coltrane i think if you were to pick the two people in the entire eight film harry potter saga who most perfectly embodied their characters i think it's robbie coltrane as hagrid yeah. and it's alan rickman as snape Mm-hmm. Right? I know yeah. you're not the biggest Harry Potter fan, but that's like, I don't know who else. Do, like, there's lots of other great ones, obviously. Ray Fine, I can't imagine anyone else doing Voldemort, but like, they're so perfect. And I think Robbie Coltrane in this one, it's, it honestly, it's, a, it's something I don't like about the books that Hagrid kind of fades into the background in the books. And it's sad for the movies because they don't get to use Robbie Coltrane that much in the last couple of books. And it's a fucking tragedy because Hagrid is. He's, he's larger than life in the best ways in this movie. I fucking love him. He's so good. Yeah, I mean, you know, a little bit ago when I was talking about, like, oh, there's this weird sense of a wall between the child and adult actors, and then it, it took me to realize, really, like, oh, wait, no, there's also Hagrid, is because in my head he's just a kid, right? Yeah. He is one of the kids in this movie, um, and, and it's so appropriate, right? Because it's kind of like his character. And I do have, we should talk at some point. There's like, there is like some weird, like class shit in Harry Potter that I had never really really been aware of um, until watching it this time where it's like, okay, yeah, there's some weird, and Hagrid is a part of that of like, Oh, the like uneducated groundskeeper at the big castle where all the like kids who are basically a metaphor for like the peerage or the nobility, the aristocracy uh, is like some weird shit going on there. But putting some of that weirdness aside, like, he fucking nails it so purely that sense of this big warm gentle giant 
like, you know, quite, you know, directly that trope, um, who is a kid, like, and him being with the kids and that stuff. I think, like, some of my favorite stuff in the movie is the early stuff when he, like, comes in and some of those early interactions with Harry is probably, like, the most I kind of, like, believe a lot of the stuff um, in the world, in the setting, because I think there's something about Hagrid that, like, grounds it much more than, like, Hogwarts is this very kind of, like, bland... I don't know. Like, there's something... One of the things I've never liked about Harry Potter is it's very staid in this, like, one setting, and you very rarely move away from Hogwarts, and that always, like, frustrated me with the series. Um, and there's something about Hagrid taking Harry around to all these places and going on these errands, and you seeing the ephemera of this setting that is really interesting, that then, like, when you actually get to Hogwarts, I think some of that stuff going away is very disappointing. But that sequence with Hagrid and this sort of more kind of grungy side of the setting... Um, that he gets to interact with is very cool. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, he's like one of like the best, better characters in this series. Like it's definitely him or Snape. That would be yeah. for me at the top. And, you know, when I say I look at this movie and I, I can't always see the movie, I see other things. Hagrid is one of those. Um, I had an, an uncle named Ron who was my mom's uh, older brother, who was much older. He was 20 years older than my mom. My mom was an accident. Um, she was much younger than all her siblings. And my Uncle Ron was really more of a grandfather to, to me and my family um, because of that, because he was you know, much older than my mom was. Um, and he was six foot six, this giant guy uh, who was, if you want to know why I'm six foot three, it's my mom's side of the family. They're very tall. Um, and he had like a big beard. And we, and, like, as soon as Harry Potter came out, everyone started like thinking of, of Ron as Hagrid a little bit. And I think he leaned into it. And I, I had a, I, I had a hard moment last night. Um, cause, cause my uncle Ron died, um, last year, uh, right, right before COVID hit. He didn't die of COVID, but, but right before it hit, we didn't get to bury him until, uh, two months ago. Um, and, and I, this is the first time I've gone back and watched Harry Potter and, oh my God, I just immediately in, in what Robbie Coltrane does, I saw a lot of Ron from that time. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's because he makes Hagrid feel like such a real person who's mm -hmm. there and living and breathing and like, who has a history that he brings with him that we don't learn in the movie. It's more in the book, but it's fine. It's just there and it's beautiful um and yeah i i you couldn't ask for a better version of this and and it's such a performance like robbie coltrane doesn't look like this when you see him outside uh -huh. of the costume and the and the makeup and the beard he's like a clean shaven guy who like is more often like cast as like the seedy gangster like in he's in golden eye mm -hmm. i've seen him in some other movies where he kind of plays that kind of character um and it's just such a complete transformation of voice and body and it's He's, he's one of the best special effects in the movie because he just embodies it. And most of what they do to make Hagrid big is low angle shots and some like trick photography and then just Robbie Coltrane doing the part. And, you know, the best special effects are always going to be the actors. Yeah. I mean, it is, there's a big middle stretch of this movie that I was kind of struggling getting through because I was finding it getting very dull. Um, and that is when, like, you're away from Hagrid for a very long stretch of the movie, and then you see him again, and it's like, oh my god, thank you, thank god. Like, yes, like, there's there's so much character to him, and it's such an entertaining performance, and he plays off of the kids so well, the kids play off of him so well, that, you know, so, some of, as you say, said earlier, like, some of the stuff with, like, the dragon in that is definitely, like, a little awkward, 
um, in terms of a like plotting thing. But there's still, I would rather have the awkward plotting and give me like the interesting group of characters interacting than some of that stuff in the middle stretch of the movie where you're kind of like a little bit off at sea, just sort of in random nonsense land. And then you go to Hagrid. It's like, let's just go like watch you guys have soup at his fucking weird little hut. And he's got a big dog and he's just Hagrid. And it's like, that's some of the best stuff in the movie, or at least certainly some of the most entertaining stuff the movie has. Yeah, you know, God, if they're when they eventually do the Harry Potter HBO Max series, just do like Hagrid in his cabin, like taking care of another group of kids at Hogwarts, but it's like from Hagrid's POV. Mm -hmm. I want that show. That would be fucking cool. Um, and and make sure J.K. Rowling has nothing to do with it. Please. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, and you know, here's the thing with Hagrid: so much of the dialogue in this movie is just taken out of the book, and like they're reciting the book. There's one big, like, recurring joke they add that is not in the book, which is Hagrid... He does... Hagrid in the book does accidentally give information away, but his whole thing where Robbie Coltrane goes, should not have said that, should not have said that. That's totally from the movie. That's invented. And it's it's one of the best things in the movie. It's so loose and, like, he gets to play it, and it's so fun and funny. I, I wanted more of that, and they do way more of that from movie three on with everybody. But, like, that's where you see, like, oh, more of that, please. That's great. You're adding on to the character. Yeah, and and it's like it's a good like I think that's a good sense of like that bit probably works better for the movie than like if Rowling had put that in the book. I don't think like that kind of recurring recurring joke doesn't usually work as well. Um, you need to it, it it's so reliant on the performer selling it and making the joke feel fresh every time it comes up. It's how those kind of recurring jokes are funny. And yeah, like like and that is something this movie needed a lot more of is an energy willing to sort of add stuff or break stuff and or cut stuff from the book and make it more movie-like because it is a movie and and that little recurring gag is um it's one of those things that when you get to see Hagrid again you're like you know you're the movie's gonna get some like good humor and it's like you're gonna get to laugh at it and have a fun time when other parts of the movie can kind of drag or be a bit dull yes Alan Rickman as yeah. Snape no one will ever say a bad thing about him, but I don't know if we can ever say enough good things. When he swaggers into the potions room for that lesson where he just starts negging Harry terribly, that three minutes is just an acting masterclass. You can learn so much about the craft of acting from what he is doing there. And it's true of every scene he has in this movie. Alan Rickman, like, I, I think Snape is one of the more interesting characters in the books on the page. But I will fight anyone who denies that Alan Rickman does not make the character better and fuller and more human. It is it is one of the master strokes of the movie series is Alan Rickman, and he's fucking brilliant here. I mean, I think it's probably why I ended up watching all the movies was like it was like the thing I always looked forward to is I like Alan Rickman's performance as Snape has always been like the most interesting thing. Like because I think he, Snape is the most interesting character. He's the character that is like the most complex and the most sort of like there's there's like a weight and an ominous sense to the character that you know beguiles his actually more heroic nature that is just a much more interesting character dynamic than most of the other characters in harry potter read to me as like very kind of flat one-dimensional like simple um and snape has a little bit more complexity and then alan rickman like wraps it up in this just every syllable is dripping with all this like like both menace but then also like especially when you know more of what the character is and that and he knew the character like the where the character was going he had been told 
when he was doing the performance, you can also then see the conflict of the internal conflict the character is wrestling with, with yeah. his own desires and his own like nature and like his complex relationship to Harry through his mother and all that shit. So I don't remember all the details of that character's arc, but it's it, it is he's a character that is very like internally conflicted with what he's being presented and what he's being asked to do. Um, and all of that wrapped up and he's so tight and severe. Um, but when you find out that he isn't the villain, it all makes sense at the end of this movie, like regardless of what happens in the later movies, like at the end of this movie, the twist that Snape isn't actually the bad guy totally lands for you, right? Like it, it makes sense because you can see that in the performance. You can feel that of like, of course, from a kid's perspective, this character seems evil and cruel and he's like almost comically over the top malicious um when in actuality he has been like the character in the adult side most actively pursuing the things that the kids have been pursuing he's just been doing it in places where the kids can't see that like i wish that there was more of that like i wish there was more like another scene with alan rickman or something to like land that of the movie more because i think it's one of the more interesting plot dynamics here and i think the movie kind of undersells it um because the, they don't develop Quirrell enough and you don't get, I think, another moment with Snape as a character to, like, really kind of, like, land that turn. Um, but Alan Rickman's performance sells so much of it that, yeah, that it's just, it's the best performance to me in the series. Um, and I, yeah. I love Alan Rickman in anything, but he's, like, exceptional in these movies. This is the first time I've watched this movie really thinking hard about something that we have we know now after the movie's ended and then J.K. Rowling has talked about this a lot after Rickman's death, that he was the one person on the movies she shared the whole plot with. Like, he knew Snape's entire arc from the word go on Philosopher's Stone. And the thing is, when you when you watch him in Sorcerer, in this movie, you can see it, if you know the ending. Like, you can see all of it. Um, because the, the plot of the books, just to, to recap really quick, is that Snape, um, his first friend ever was Lily Potter, before she was Lily Potter. Um, and they were very good friends. They had kind of a falling out at school because he was in Slytherin. And, like, J.K. Rowling almost figures out in that backstory that, like, it's a chicken and the egg, but actually Slytherin is bad because people make them bad. Like, it's a weird thing going yeah. on there. Um, almost gets that, doesn't quite get over the hump with that. But anyway, um, and anyway, so so Snape, they, like, they drift apart, um, but then he is still has a thing for her, um, and betrays Voldemort to try to save her and then Voldemort winds up killing her anyway and that is why he comes to Dumbledore's side um so when you get to where Philosopher's Stone starts he has been you know grieving for all these years and he is meeting Lily Potter's son for the first time and he feels like he has to protect this kid but he also resents the kid because the kid represents the lost life right yeah Alan Rickman plays all of that. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. Like when you watch the the potions room scene, he comes in and he notices that this kid is well. First, I don't think he realizes that's Harry Potter. He sees him like one. I don't know why Snape gets mad at Harry for taking notes in his class, but you know, yeah. whatever. Um, I also don't different... know why Harry was writing word for word what Snape was saying when it was like an introductory, like I am Snape yeah. and this is my potions class. It's like I better write down I am Snape and this is my potions class. I might need to refer to this. This might be on the test. Is it's, it's, it's a lot contrived in that whole sequence. It's of his it's his first day of school. He's you know yeah. he doesn't quite know what to do, but he realizes it's Harry and you see the shift where he's he's like testing this kid out and he's like trying to feel the ground. 
and you also see how taken aback he is and they play that over and over my favorite little moment that they give and it's amazing for what alan rickman adds to it is when he because i think on the script there's so there's this scene where when harry gets the nimbus 2000 the broom and it's right before the quidditch game snape walks by and like wishes him good luck and in the script, all that scene is there for, I think, is to set up that Harry doesn't trust Snape and then to remind you that Snape is distrustful for the next scene where we are led to believe he's criticizing Harry, right? Or yeah. he's sabotaging Harry. Uh -huh. But the way Rickman plays it is he has this kind... He's still trying to feel it out and he has this weird sense of obligation to the kid and he comes up and he's being, I think, sincere and he he's like deeply uncomfortable in his own skin and and doesn't really know what to say and then walks off and like that is an example of an actor taking a moment and like making seven other things out of it than i think were intended um and he just does that throughout the movie he just does that over and over again he's great um and i do think the one thing that's missing is uh it there's no denouement with snape in this movie there yeah. should be a scene after harry wakes up at the end like what it should be is like when harry's on his way to the great hall for the final feast he should have run into snape and there should have been a little like detente and that's not in the book you would have had to add it i think you can get away with it not being in the book because the book we are so in harry's pov and like it's just a different kind of thing but i think you need it in the movie and i i do miss that there's no like final moment there for th there is in the series but not for this film right yeah because this movie is like because it's based on a book that again was open to sequels but was not designed specifically as a sequel story um like there is a completeness to a lot of like the feeling of the plot of the movie that if there had never been another one like it would be fine Voldemort is like defeated he maybe will return again but Harry Potter will come back to Hogwarts and he's found his family like there's a sense of finality there to a lot of like the plot that they tell except for there's this weird thing of where like Snape gets to have this moment off screen of where you realize he's actually been he like heroic the entire time he's been the only adult who has actually been like who knows what's up and has been working for the same thing the kids have been working every other adult is like incompetent and that never really comes up um and they they never really address the fact that snape was on the kid's side the whole time it feels like a weird just sort of yeah. like not just a missed opportunity but like a necessary piece of the plot that as you say it needs to be there for the denouement and it's just sort of like lost yes um all right there's a million other actors we could talk about i do love the two actors who played the dursleys richard griffiths who has sadly passed away as vernon dursley and then fiona shaw as petunia um man they are so good in the like very like roll doll vein those characters come out of um Richard Griffiths in particular I think is very funny as as Vernon Dursley and the Dursleys become kind of a formulaic thing that the movies I think wisely start excising after yeah. the third book because they're not super necessary but in these first three movies I do enjoy their time because I think they're as just performances they're very effective and funny yeah I, I like the performances I think some of like these characters I'd I've never like liked this side of the series that I mean this is like the thing that when I read Goblet of Fire I was like I'm out like I can't get back to this shit like this is so whatever like it's the same thing over and over again um at the beginning of that fourth book um but I also do think this is where you get some there's this weird like classist thing here in Harry Potter of like the wizards being basically like a metaphor for like nobility or the aristocracy right that it's this like blood-based thing that harry 
is like this secret prince, basically, right? Um, that he gets this letter that's like, actually, you are the descendant of the peerage, the member of like uh, some sort of noble family. And so you get to go off and live in like Victorian castle land. Um, and, and there's this like contempt for like the middle class or something that is like personified in the like the kind of fat phobic consumptive nature of the Dursleys the, of the, they're trying it is this like big parody thing and I understand it's a big parody thing but I think when it's combined with this very kind of thoughtless conservative use of um like the this symbolic use of the royalty and royal family stuff that then is the, the blood stuff is not heavy in this like I didn't remember that they'd ever even go into in this movie I don't know if it's in the book like Hermione and all of that I guess that's all Chamber of Secrets is where the like the mud blood and all that comes they, in yeah they explain that she is born from muggles but they don't get into all of the like blood terminology that the Death Eaters use until the book two yeah yeah but like but that stuff is still even though because that stuff I had always thought of as a race thing but I think it is much more of a class thing because you have to be like being of the blood is a class thing in when you have an aristocratic like properly aristocratic like the descendant based you are my son so you and i was the duke and you will be the duke like that kind of thing um there is that here and like the dursleys kind of like are the most severe version of it in this movie since they don't get to the blood thing and there's something about that that i find a little bit gross kind of revisiting it and knowing some of it is like I'm not as willing to give charitable readings to Harry Potter when I know J.K. Rowling it's like full fucking shtick in the real world and then some of it is knowing where the series goes and how it gets kind of gross with that stuff never really knows what message is trying to say and then ends up I think ultimately being this kind of weird conservative thing that is ultimately very in support of like this very harsh like aristocratic like high class and like high born low born division between the muggles and the wizards um like that stuff. I don't know if I would agree with that in, in where the series ultimately goes, but, um, but I do agree. So, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that reading of like as the whole series goes along. I do. This has been the biggest thing that I've reanalyzed in Harry Potter since uh, since J.K. Rowling came out as a bigot. Is that there are just a lot of prejudices she sprinkles throughout these books, and the biggest one is fat phobia. Um, the movies move away from it a lot, and I will give praise to the movies for. Very frequently, when Rowling is doing a fat phobic thing, they will ignore that and they will cast, they will not do that. Um, the Dursleys are very toned down from what they are in the books. Like, Richard Griffiths is big, and I guess the kid who played Studley is a little portly, but like, it's very exaggerated in the, in the books. Um, and J.K. Rowling, like, if you can say one thing that is always true of Harry Potter, she pretty much always connects, like, fatness and largesse to villainy or to like this this consumption thing and like this this badness this like some kind of huge character failing um like which i guess hagrid escapes because hagrid is a literal giant so it's not a like fatness thing right but yeah. like it's and uh, it's also pretty... hagrid is coded as low as class, class yeah. right yes. like he while he gets to live in the world of magic he doesn't get to live in the castle right no he doesn't yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's very true, and I think there is classism, and I think there is uh, a lot of, like, body image things throughout. There's there's some weird stuff with, like, femininity, I think, in, in some of the later books and with Hermione. Um, the house elf thing, the movie's pretty much totally issue after movie two, which is correct, because Rowling gets really wrapped around the axle of that in books four, five, and six. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, there are... 
the 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 broad arc of the story is about a certain kind of tolerance and yet there is there are various like personal prejudices she has that are you know some culturally ingrained some her own weird hang-ups that are throughout the books um and it's one reason i and i think the movies actually are pretty wise about steering away from that in various places um which is good <laughs> this movie not as much it's not as obvious in this movie but in in the sequels i will say that yeah i think like part of the, the the class thing is like i don't feel like harry potter ever like actually the series i don't think it ever like grapples with the like the muggle like the, the because because they don't ever actually break down that boundary really right the wizarding world yeah. gets to maintain what it is it gets to continue to be this weird like victorian aristocratic society that exists um like outside of the realm of everything else there's something there of like this weird sort of appeal towards this like that victorian sensibility where like the peerage was much more powerful and influential i mean it's still very powerful and influential they still have a fucking house of lords in the uk i don't understand how that's still a thing but they do right but like there is something there that i think is never really reckoned with all the way and again i think i've always found it interesting or i guess i now find it interesting that it's been read so much as a race thing when i it feels to me watching this movie like oh this is so much more a class thing it's so much more an aristocracy thing than it is to me specifically about race and obviously those things can be like intertwined but there is this like oh the like fat materialistic fucking grubbing like modern middle class it, like let's get rid of that and go back to this like sort of weird victorian like slightly more pastoral um england um or i guess technically they're in scotland but like more pastoral uk or the british empire where you get to live in your castles and you get to have fucking owls and all this shit there's there's something weird there that like watching this movie made me like uncomfortable and it was specifically in that transition of like Hagrid and the way the Dursleys are treated and all that is feels it feels wrong to me even if I recognize the realm of parody it's supposed to be in like it feels so mean-spirited um that I, I I couldn't really I didn't like it like it made me feel bad yeah and I mean some of this is traditions that these books inherit from British literature yeah. and this particularly books for kids like there's a lot of Roald Dahl in, mm -hmm. in the Dursleys I think particularly um, and Roald Dahl had his own issues with race and class as we all know um, I, I think that and I think you're right I think all of that is there I think the books always see the muggle world and they always present it this way. They present the muggle-wizard split as the wizards feel like it is right to just remove themselves because the alternative would be subjugation of the humans and it is better to let the like muggles live their own lives and not be negatively impacted by them. Like This is Dumbledore's arc, we learn, is that as a young man, Dumbledore dabbled in light fascism and thought about trying to subjugate the humans so that they could like be improved by the, the wizards before realizing that's wrong and then pushing for a sort of like isolationism where the wizards sort of live on their own and let the muggles decide their own fates. But I think the opposite side of that that the books don't really consider is like, well, what are the good things that the wizards could do for the muggles? And what are the resources they're hogging? And like, there is this like, what you say, if it does kind of play as a class metaphor of like, being off on their own elevated and having kind of a looking down view. Um, yeah, I think I think 
it's a it's I think it's more of a blind spot than like an active like prejudice in the yeah. books, but it's a clear blind spot. And then there is the other really massive blind spot, which is the goblin bank scene. Okay, yeah, in this yeah, movie yeah. is a fucking thing. Holy shit, that is like you know, like you know, you realize, of course, like when you get older. Okay, yeah, no, this is definitely like coded um, as a Jewish thing, and they are like, I mean, it's anti-Semitic, right? Um, but then I hadn't fucking revisited this in a long time, and watching it now, um, knowing a lot more and having a lot more experience with like anti-Semitism and that coding in media, holy shit, dude! That is a case where the movie does not uh, 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 try to reduce Rowling's prejudice. That is one where it like because she describes in the book hook-nosed goblins with the money, yeah. Um, but then they like they take that to eleven. You're right. It's very heavy. It's cringeworthy. It's uh. It's a lot. It's you know, it's super impressive makeup and costuming and yeah. production design, but it's coded. Whether anyone was aware of it or not, it shows you how just like anti-Semitism sometimes is just this fucking casual thing you throw around because it's like, well, of course the money lenders will be hook-nosed, small, little, and you should at that point go, oh, oh, what am I doing? Oh God, right? Yeah, yeah. it's it's like what? it's it's pretty fucking extreme. Um it's yeah it is, it is of anything in this movie i think like whatever with the fucking bad cg that is the thing that has aged the worst um yes, looking back yes. on it as an adult it's like oh my god oh my god a couple other adults i wanted to mention uh dame maggie smith as professor mm -hmm. mcgonagall she kicks fucking ass right yeah. yeah love her she's always great uh, Julie Walters, who is a legendary British actress, who she's fun if you open up her Wikipedia page, just like the opening paragraphs go on forever because she's been in so many things. She plays uh, Ron's mom, and she's only in one right. scene in this movie. But when I say you have a bunch of adult actors who just come in, clean up, and then leave, Julie Walters is one of those. Her mm -hmm. scene at King's Cross is fucking great. It's like, it's really just a dry exposition scene of like, here's how you get into the station. She, like, suggests the entire, like, life of the Weasleys in, like, three lines of dialogue. That's what I mean by the actors being really good in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't, I had, like, zoomed in on that, but you're right. Like, it is a very, it's one little moment, but it is a very effective moment. Um, yeah, and then she's in all the other movies, yeah. too, obviously, but um, that paid off. Uh, John Hurt, our beloved, we love John Hurt here, the late, great John Hurt, has one scene as Ollivander, the wand salesman, that to me might be the best scene in the movie in some ways. That and like the mirror of Eris said maybe, and and maybe some of the ha some of the stuff with Dumbledore at the end. But like, I think Harry walking into that wand shop and John Hurt, they just kind of give the movie to John Hurt for five uh -huh. minutes, and he he makes a meal out of it. It's such a good scene. He takes every line of dialogue and devours it like it's a three course meal. Um, and I think that set is also just super fun. I love the idea of a big wand shop that's like a old like shoe like cobbler store where it's just like up to the ceilings and like he's going back and very mysterious. What a what a cool little scene, right? Yeah, it is a great like because it kind of has like this almost like bottle scene quality to it. Because I think on the paper, the idea that this character who only appears in this scene, like, delivers some of the most important exposition of the entire movie. Because he's the one who tells Harry about fucking Voldemort and the wand and, like, how it made the scar. Like, all of that. He later, you know, you then have another scene that kind of follows up on it with Hagrid. Hagrid. But that's where, like, all that information is delivered to you. Um, and, like, on the page, I think it's kind of weird to give that to a character that then never shows up again in this movie. Um, but John Hurt sells it so fucking hard that 
that like sequence where he's talking about it's like oh that wand has a brother wand and who had that wand did great things terrible things but great things like that he just yeah. like leans into it so hard it like absolutely works for me well what you're saying actually that is one change they made in the movie is that in the book Hagrid has a whole exposition dump when they're in the the cabin um, with the Dursleys and that's where we learn about Voldemort and all of that um, and then Ollivander his revelation is just that this wand had a brother and it gave you that scar right uh-huh. um, but they move that because they don't want the scene in the cabin to be 40 minutes long they split it into Hagrid has another scene after the Ollivander scene where he like breaks it down and I think it's effective for the movie because I like that it's like Hagrid gives him a little bit in the cabin then you have the big scene um, in, in Diagon Alley and Gringotts and all of that then you have this weird encounter with Ollivander who delivers this crazy piece of exposition and then Harry brings it up to Hagrid who reluctantly explains it. I actually think that sequencing is is good in a cinematic sense. Yeah, um, but it, it like it really leans a lot on John Hurt's performance in this like yeah. one little scene to like land it and he fucking chews it up and, and it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sean, if you're going to lean into an actor, uh, lean into John Hurt. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. I have no idea if this is true, but if it is, it's fucking hilarious. Apparently, Tim Roth was originally cast as Snape or chosen as Snape, but Tim Roth turned it down to go do Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. That is Ooh. the worst career choice of all time, right? Yeah, that's, you know, this would be a very nice, fat, reliable paycheck uh, to be in the Harry Potter movies, which can go on for like a decade, versus I'm going to be in. Like, what is, like, infamously one of the worst remakes in the history of Hollywood? Um, that I like, mean, it's good is, for us because Alan Rickman is trading up from yes. Tim Roth. What, what the fuck were they thinking there? That yeah. would have been terrible. Yeah. But Tim anyway. Roth has got to kick himself every once in a while. That's got to be a thing that, like, you're going to sleep at night and then, like, you're about to fall asleep and then that pops into your head. It's like, oh, <laughs> I could have been fucking Snape. God damn it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we could go on and on about the actors. You've got Warwick Davis and John Cleese each have a scene and, and lots and lots of people. But it's, uh, you know, if nothing else, this first movie was very, very well cast. The Harry Potter movies were, like, impeccably well cast for eight movies. And that just continued. And, you know, part of that is they had, I think, their pick. They could have had anyone they wanted, clearly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, I don't know if we have too much more to say about this movie. I think we've been plenty thorough with it. Um I mean, is there anything more to say about the John Williams score other than that, like, John Williams came and gave them a real honest-to-God John Williams score? And, like, I think in 2021, you realize what a rare, beautiful thing that is. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's a great fucking score. Like, it's not my favorite John Williams score, but it is, I mean, even not my favorite John Williams score is, like, a thousand marks above almost any other movie score, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Because I agree. It's not my favorite John Williams score, but he immediately, because like, and he wrote the stuff early enough that the Harry Potter theme was in the first trailer. So Harry Potter always had a mu- a piece of music associated with it. And I think people underestimate how much that helped the movies as a mm-hmm. movie series. That there was always music associated with it. And even after John Williams left, after the third movie, some of it was still there. And it's there through the end. Um, and like that matters it's a lesson i wish more movies would learn i wish the marvel movies at any point had invested in the only one they do is the avengers theme which does get a great moment in endgame of high emotion but you realize how much the rest of the movies are just utterly lacking in that 
Um, and, you know, I think it's a big reason why this movie felt like a serious thing WB was doing is because they had John Williams do a, a score of the, like, scale of a Star Wars or an Indiana Jones or something. It's that level of iconic. Yeah, and and, and particularly that core theme is, like, incredible. It is, it yeah. is like, I, to me, if, if anything could be, like, persuade could persuade me into being invested in the world of harry potter it's honestly that theme music which is <laughs> so perfect um for like the tone and it like creates the tone of the thing to me in so many ways um that yeah that like core melody is absolutely phenomenal absolutely phenomenal i think a lot of he just does a lot of good atmospherics and a lot of scenes um, I like how this movie kind of traces the, the changing of the seasons, and I think his music does that as well. Um, it's really good. I, I think it's a little overbaked in some places, but I also think that's kind of the tone the movie is going for, uh -huh. so it's not out of place. I think his score for Prisoner of Azkaban is even better, um, and he didn't he didn't really score Chamber of Secrets. They just, because that movie came out a year later, they kind of just reused stuff, uh, which you can kind of tell when you watch it. Um, but his score for Prisoner of Azkaban is even better. Um, and Harry Potter has, even after he leaves, has a lot of good music. I like the Nicholas Hooper scores. I like, I really like Alexander Desplat's scores for the last two. But they started with John Williams and, uh, you know, you, you can't start better than that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you gotta, and you gotta get someone like that to kind of like define the musical space of the series. Yeah. You know, like it's just so much of what he does. It is, it is better than the of all modern movie scores. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it is one of the things about this. It's like that in fucking practical sets. You're like, God damn it, movies. Yeah. Can, we get, can we get these two things? And immediately every movie will be about five times as good as it is. Um, one other thing I just want to say that I noticed this time. I think this movie has a good sense of, you know, like a kid's movie sense of how to make creepy scenes that are not going to scare adults, but are like a good amount of creep for kids. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of those in there. I think the Forbidden Forest scene, I think a lot of the stuff in the last act with like the big chess set and all of that stuff, um, there's just a couple of those. Like like Harry gets bloodied up by the end of the movie just a little bit. And I remember as a kid being like, ooh, you know, I know everything that's going to happen, but it is like a little creepy. And I think that's, that's cool. That's something you want in something like this. And um, yeah. There is that one shot where he's in the fucking library and he opens up a book and a face just screams yes. out of the book at him and he shuts the book. I'm like, Jesus Christ! I, that's, I can't remember that. That is that's like the a, scene I was. That's a legitimately sorry, creepy moment. Um, because yeah, well, I love that whole scene. I love him in the library and like creeping through and the John Williams stuff. There is like this very atmospheric like. Ooh, kind of thing and he's walking through with the lamp but it's just his hand because of the invisibility cloak and um and then he finds that book that's a great little slice of atmosphere scene i've always remembered that um and i do just want to shout out i really like the chess scene i know when they become cgi it's it's not perfect and they should be stop motion as you say but those fucking giant chess statues and that entire set is one of the coolest things in all eight harry potter movies and it is also the one time in the series where ron is useful um so good for ron that's the useful thing he does um and i think it's a i think it's a cool idea that like ron has to fucking like play chess to win like that's anime as fuck i love it I, I like the idea of, like, I think so. the execution of that scene is a little weird. I don't know. Like, it's, it's yeah. mostly just, like, a, here's a series of, like, weird faded cuts of things, of chess yes. pieces exploding. There's not, like, a sense of, man, Ron's doing something. You know, it's, like, it's a lot of, like, filler to, I gotta play a sacrificial move. 
And Harry's like, oh, no, Ron, you can't do that. It's like, I'm going to do it. It's like, well, okay. And then Ron very clearly is completely fine. Uh, like, he didn't, he, he fell from, like, three feet, four feet up. Like, nothing particularly dramatically violent happened to Ron whatsoever. The thing hit the fucking, like, chess piece he's sitting on. It didn't hit him in any ways, and he fell down. Like, oh, no, Ron. Um, and I do find it funny that, like, Harry's just like, I'm going to just need to, I guess I just need to keep on moving ahead. He clearly assumes that Ron has been brutally murdered, I guess, based on the way he's been acting up to that moment. Um, and he just sort of abandons his friends on that weird chessboard to go, you know, confront the Quirrell or Snape or whatever he thinks he's going to do. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, the Quirrell thing, I will say, is very inherited from the book. Like, Quirrell is in the book more, but, like, not enough to justify. Like, he's only there as, like, the guy who's going to be the villain at the end. Um, it's a little weird, but, you know, I do, I do think, okay, the effects are a little rough. I think the way they always have, so the, the Voldemort's face is on the back of Quirrell's mm -hmm. head, right? Which is a gnarly, sick little idea. But then I think that's actually the sharpest piece of effects direction Columbus does, is it's always framed through the, like, dirty mirror. And so you're never looking at just the effect, like, head on. That's actually really sharp. I think that's, like, the CGI could be better there, but I actually think that's an effective way to make that scene creepy. Yeah, that, that's a good example of their, the, the CGI is pretty good. And I do think there's some smart stuff they do in the quid scenes where there's a lot of good shots of, like, the camera behind a d digital, like, where it's basically mostly just a CG sequence, um, but, like, a digital character, and the camera is, like, appropriately shaky, um, and characters are zooming by fast enough that you can't really look at the humans. And it's, like, it's actually a pretty canny use of digital doubles um, yeah. in a movie where there are a lot of scenes, like the trade, the troll scene looks awful um and does not hold up to me at all like that no the cg in that scene because it's so flatly lit it's a static fucking camera You're just sitting there looking at this very bad early 2000 cg picking up a very bad early 2000 cg daniel radcliffe or whatever um the quidditch scene they find natural ways to obscure or like complicate the vision of the camera in order to sell the digital effects. And some of that I think is like worth appreciating, especially because digital effects stuff was still so early um, that them being able to pull off some of the stuff as well as they do, I think is legitimately very impressive. Anytime there's like a full CG character though, like the centaur dude or um, the troll, doesn't really work. Doesn't really work, and I agree. And I think the Quidditch scene also works really hard to get back to physical effects as fast as it can yes. every time. Like, there's a lot of shots that are actors. They're probably on a green screen, but they're there. They're, like, up on a wire, and, like, Daniel Radcliffe is, like, doing stuff and not just a CG double, or, like, when Oliver Wood gets hit through the thing and then falls down into the sand and it's a real stunt person. Like, there's stuff like that that just, like... Yeah. There's a lot of, like, get back to physical as quickly as we can, which is smart, um, which is not usually the default today, which is too bad. Yeah, the troll does not look good, which is too bad because when they when the troll falls down, it's then it's a real, like, big puppet thing, and it looks fucking cool. It looks like a Jim Henson, like, yeah. evil puppet. Like, big. it's a big life-size thing. But, like, I wish I wish they'd done it more, like, Jim Henson style or something, like, from Labyrinth yeah. or whatnot. Like, that's, that would have looked sick. Yeah, if they had done puppets for the dog, puppets for the centaur, or, like, some sort of puppet-esque effect for the centaur. There's lots of ways you could have done the centaur practically. Um, and then for the troll, and then done stop motion for the chest, I would really like this movie. Like, just on a, like, creature <laughs> component. Yeah. I mean, because that is one of the reasons why I didn't like this movie that much, I think, is especially one month after this, fucking Fellowship of the Ring comes out, and the cave 
troll in Fellowship of the Ring looks like it should be from a movie a hundred years after this movie in terms of how well they yeah. sell a CG troll monster. Um, it is like it feels generations apart in terms of the execution. Um, I think you're right. You talk about that scene being like still and flatly lit in Harry Potter. In Lord of the Rings, that troll, they just, they shoot a super complex action scene with like lots of moving camera and like lots of things exploding and like darker, more complicated lighting. And it just, it helps sell it so much. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a much better model because they like, they, they scanned in a much better, I think, like textured model. And like this texture of this troll's skin is sort of lizardy. Um, which like refracts light in a way that was easier for repl to replicate digitally at the time. There's like a lot of obviously Weta on Weta on the Lord of the Rings movies was like super super fucking ahead of their time with how to do a lot of that stuff. Yeah, um, so, I mean, Weta's always ahead of their yeah. time. Weta's always ahead of everyone else. Like they did the fucking the Planet of the Apes movies, you know? Like yeah, they're yeah. Um, one other thing I want to talk about, Sean, with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, because this is a story near and dear to my heart. Is that it is... I think a lot of people think this is an apocryphal story. It's not. There is a... This is real. Bruce Springsteen, the American recording artist... <laughs> yes, I know this. Out yeah. of the blue, wrote and recorded a theme song for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And instead of just me telling you this story, there is... Uh, the, the Bruce Springsteen um, uh, fan site Backstreets has... They did an interview with Chris Columbus. They had him write a little essay for the 15th anniversary of the movie about this because this is when the song was first heard was like 15 years later um and so because uh, we have the song now it's called i'll stand by you always i had a version on our youtube page that got copyright struck which is too bad i'll put it on twitter maybe um where i put it into the last scene where it would have gone but i want to read to you a little bit of this is chris columbus writing about um the experience of the bruce springsteen thing in harry potter right Mm -hmm. He has uh, like a page or two at the beginning just explaining how much he loved Bruce Springsteen. Like Bruce Springsteen was like incredibly formative to Chris Columbus as he is to many of us. So he really one day he wanted to have a Bruce song in one of his movies is what he establishes. So picking up the essay here. We were in post-production on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone when I got a call from an executive at Warner Brothers. He said, you're not going to believe this, but someone, someone really huge, I mean a big, big superstar, has written a song for your film. I asked who, thinking that because of the extremely British nature of the film, it was probably someone like Sting or Paul McCartney. The executive said Bruce Springsteen. My fucking heart leapt into my throat. Here was my chance, my opportunity to finally have a Bruce song in one of my films. The next day, the Bruce CD arrived at Leavesden Studios. I tore open the FedEx envelope, ran into my office, and closed the door. I needed to hear this first. I needed to hear this alone. I looked at the title on the CD. I'll stand by you. Already a classic title. I placed the CD into my boombox and hit play. This is very 2000. Uh -huh. uh, my first reaction was sheer joy. I'll Stand By You was one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard. One of the most elegant and emotional songs Bruce had ever written. I played it over and over. I drove home and played it for my wife and kids. They all loved the song. I went to sleep that night thinking, my dream has finally come true. The next day on the mixing stage, I asked the editors to put up the final reel of Sorcerer's Stone. This song deserved a great place in the film, and I was determined to play it over the end credits as the Hogwarts Express takes Harry, Hermione, and Ron back to their families. Within a few minutes, the song was synced up with the final credits. We played the reel. We played it again and again. I probably viewed that reel for the next four hours, creating a sense of anxiety and over-budgetary fears into the hearts of my producers. I wanted that song to work. I wanted to fucking will that song into the final credits. But there was one issue. 
The first 140 minutes of the first Harry Potter film were intensely, deeply British. Every single actor was British. Mm -hmm. Their dialogue called more from British versions of the book than from the edited American versions. Things like Jumper were replaced by Sweater in the American text. The sets were historically British, and John Williams' roaring score was also, in its heart, extraordinarily British. Bruce's amazing, heartbreakingly beautiful songs slightly shifted the mood of the film from England to back across the pond, back to America. It would be the first time in our film where we would hear a we where we would not hear a British voice. Also complicating matters, John Williams had already written a full eight minutes of an orchestral piece to end the film. I would have to face the maestro and tell him that I was planning to cut his eight-minute symphony. This certainly would have sent John running for the hills and ended our working relationship forever. Had I done that, John definitely would not have scored the subsequent Potter films. I was fucking devastated. I'd waited over 25 years for a Bruce song, and finally I received one of the best songs he'd ever written, and I couldn't use it. I was lost, depressed, and truly upset. I did the only thing I felt I could do. I decided to write to Bruce to explain what had happened, so I started writing and writing, and 12, page later, 12 pages later, I finished what was part apology, part explanation, part historical journey of my own personal relationship with Bruce and his music. Bruce wrote back a few weeks later saying he understood and may even take me up on my offer for him and his family to come visit the Harry Potter 2 set. That never materialized, but as you would expect with Bruce, he was incredibly gracious and understanding and made me feel a whole lot better with one line, you gotta do what's right for your movie. Of course, Bruce would care about what's in the heart of the artist. That yeah. is like a fucking Twilight Zone episode, uh -huh. right? Like, director who has always wanted Bruce Springsteen is about to finish his biggest movie ever, gets a CD in the mail, and it is a good song. I think he's slightly overstating it, but I'll Stand By You Always is a really good Bruce Springsteen song. Um, and he gets that, and he puts it over the movie, and is like in the booth watching it over and over, realizing, but I can't. God yeah. damn it. Like, can you... One, can you imagine if they'd actually done it? And two, like, fucking Chris Columbus, that must have been the most heart... I can't even imagine how much that fucking sucked for him. <laughs> yeah, it is, It is like, such a bizarre scenario because, because obviously it's the right choice. Like, his reasoning is very clear, and it's the right reasoning. This is a British-as-fuck movie. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> is an American-as-fuck musical artist, right? He's, like, one yes. of the most American musical artists you could possibly get. Um, so the idea of a Bruce Priestley song at the end of a Harry Potter movie is, like, patently absurd and hilarious. But it is also fucking Bruce Springsteen. So it's like, it doesn't fit. No. But it is fucking Bruce Springsteen. So I I would have, I if I were Christopher Columbus, I would have found some way. Fucking get, like, one theater. Just to put, like, this print in one fucking theater in, like, my hometown or some shit. Get this one. Like, just one. And I'm going to go and I'm going to be there uh, that night. And I'm going to see that in a movie theater. And the rest of it and the home video version and all that can have the John Williams thing. But I want one movie theater to one night play this version that has this fucking Bruce Springsteen song in it. That's what I would do. I got to, you know, I got to give it to Chris Columbus. Whatever flaws he has as a filmmaker, I would not have had the constitution to tell Bruce no. Yeah. I would have picked Bruce over John Williams and I would have tanked my fucking career. <laughs> oh my God. What a story. That is, I just, I think that's amazing. Because also, like, Bruce wasn't commissioned. He just did it because, so, so Bruce's kids are about the age of you and me, Sean. He had mm -hmm. his kids in, like, 90, 92. Um, and so they just, they read the books and they loved them. And Bruce Springsteen heard there was a movie. And so he wrote this song and sent it. It was completely uncommissioned and unsanctioned. I, it's so amazing to me. 
Um, and if you see, I'll try putting it on Twitter the version I cut together where I cut the song in after Harry's last line, I'm not going home, not really. And that's where the Williams swells, but instead I cut in the, the Bruce song. I think it's fucking great. It's very funny to me because it's like Haggard waving as like Bruce starts singing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like, do you think that Bruce Springsteen did it partly just to fuck with them? Do you think because he had to know <laughs> that it was ridiculous, right? He had to know Harry how British fucking Harry Potter is and how like insane it is to send a Bruce Springsteen song to be played at the end credits of the movie. It's like I just hope I I hope that he's done that and we just don't know about it for other movies also that he knew there's no way they're gonna be able to put this at the end credits. So I'm gonna send them this song just to fuck with these people. He did it for the Downton Abbey movie, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, like. So this is actually a weird period for Bruce Springsteen because this is during his longest gap where 95 to 2002, he doesn't have an album. Mm -hmm. He does in 99 reunite the E Street Band and they do their, their first tour in over 10 years. But for the most part, he does not release new material for seven years. It's not until after 9-11... Um, which would be after the production of Harry Potter that he he writes The Rising and puts that out. So this is a period that's kind of fallow. He's just like living with his family, doing stuff. And I just like that he's bored writing songs for blockbusters that won't get used. Yeah. <laughs> like just sending them to directors that like grew up listening to his music and then just torturing them with this like impossible choice. Yes. I think that's a good place to probably wrap up, Sean. Yeah. Anything else to say about uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Sorcerer's Stone? It's just the Philosopher's Stone. That other, like, it's a crime against, like, everything that that title has not been changed. I don't even like Harry Potter. Um, and it still upsets me that they, that they did that because, you know, the Philosopher's Stone is a thing. It would be like if you had, like, Harry Potter and the Knights of the Circular Table. Like, you mean the round yeah. table? Like, what the... It's a thing. Um... <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's Harry Potter's fine. Wow, that's the nicest thing you've ever said about it. Um, no, I yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it was interesting to revisit. I am glad we did this podcast. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm glad also I'm glad that, I, I, that we're not going to do any of the other movies because I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> that's okay, Sean. I'm not. I wouldn't make you. And we have other stuff to get to. Uh, next week we will be talking about Mobile Suit Gundam Iron Blooded Orphans Season One. We're finally going to figure out why those orphans have so much iron in their blood and whether or not it's healthy for them. Um, but before uh, we break, Sean, I do just want to introduce the segment at the end of this episode is a little reading I did. I recorded this last night of I wrote this big piece when the last Harry Potter movie was coming out um, called Harry Potter Memories that was a seven-part series um, where I just, I wanted, and I'm still glad I did this, before... I like aged out of all of it. I just wanted to set down a record of all my memories of those years and kind of how I grew up with the series and what it meant to me while it was still fresh. Uh, you can find it. It's in my, I, I, re, I published it in my book that's out there if anyone has that. It's also been republished on jonathanlack.com if you want to find all seven parts. Um, but this is just a reading of chapter three, which is the chapter that picks up with uh, the production and, and release of movies one and two. Um, and so I wrote this in 2010, and then this is the revised text from 2013. This originally published November 14th, 2010. So this was like near the 10th anniversary of the first movie, and now I'm reading it another 10 years later. I don't agree with everything I say in this piece, but it does contain a lot of like the memories and recollections, and I think people will, when I describe like the games and the DVDs, I think some people who are my age will get a kick out of it. So that is what you're going to hear as the end of this show. But Sean, for now, I will give the final word to you. 
everyone, you should be grateful that I'm not going to record anything of me reading my opinions of Harry Potter in 2010, because it would have been a lot more incendiary than anything you heard here today. Priori Incantatum, Harry Potter Memories, Chapter 3, Petrificus Totalis. From the time I first opened Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone to when Goblet of Fire hit shelves, less than a year had elapsed. New Harry Potter literature had been a constant and continuous part of my seven-year-old life, but that era was over. Though none of us knew so at the time, it would be three whole years, roughly equivalent to three decades in kid years, before Rowling released another book. It would have been an absolutely grueling wait, but producer David Heyman and Warner Brothers Pictures were already hard at work ensuring that the intervening time would be anything but uneventful. A year before the release of Goblet of Fire, they had purchased the rights to the first four novels and immediately set to work at producing what would become the single most successful film franchise of all time. I obviously had no knowledge of this back then. All I knew was that my favorite book was being turned into a movie, and that excited me to no end. Warner's marketing team knew exactly how to exploit that boundless excitement, and I have many fond memories of the mammoth hype surrounding the release of the first movie. The original teaser poster, released during the 2000 Christmas season, depicted an owl flying through a starry night sky to deliver Harry's Hogwarts letter. It featured no characters and gave no indication of what the movie was going to look like, but it still caught my attention every time I saw it in a theater. A rousing teaser trailer followed in early 2001, and remains to this day one of the greatest film previews I have ever seen, perfectly tailored to make every Harry Potter fan worldwide cry tears of joy. The teaser is chiefly comprised of various money shots, like the cascading letters, the Hogwarts Express, the Great Hall, each of the major characters, and Gringotts, accompanied by the debut of John Williams' fantastic score. Thanks to this trailer, Hedwig's theme was iconic nearly a year before the film opened, and though I loved seeing images of all my favorite characters and locations from the book, it was the music that really stuck in my mind. That brief two-minute teaser had gotten many things right, but nothing evoked the spirit of Rowling's work more than William's harmonic magic. The hype only increased from there, with the speed and force of an out-of-control freight train, until the film's November 16th release date. I remember watching the trailers religiously online, checking Warner Brothers' official Harry Potter site for updates, news stories, and to play some surprisingly fun and addictive online browser games. The website has since become much less interesting. Or eating the promotional candies, like Birdie Bot's Every Flavored Beans, and going back to read the first four books again all on my own, since my parents had read them with me the first times through. I bought many of the toys, mostly Lego sets, and began watching Kids WB religiously for their Harry Potter coverage and contests. With the help of my parents, I actually entered a few of their massive prize drawings, and for the first and so far only time in my life, I actually won something, and not just some flimsy little consolation prize either. I arrived home from school one day to find that a full-size print of the Sorcerer's Stone theatrical poster had arrived in the mail. A Drew Struzan masterpiece, it's still one of my favorite posters, and currently hangs above the dresser in my room. A few days later, I won a Hogwarts Express train set. More than just a toy, this was a top-of-the-line electric Bachman brand train. Gorgeous and, I suspect, very expensive. Every Christmas, my family still busts this out. It's a magical piece of Potter memorabilia. The hype was such that by the time November 16th arrived, I doubt I had ever been so excited for anything in my entire life, although Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings would rival that claim just a month later. 
My parents and I had visited the local United Artists Denver West Theater and bought our tickets weeks in advance for opening night, a wise decision seeing as when opening day finally arrived, showtimes were sold out everywhere. Even though we arrived at the theater early, the lines were already massive. It was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. There were many families just like mine, eager to see the film, but also adults, couples, and plenty of people in costume, an eclectic audience all ready to have their world rocked. We film critics like to talk about the movies that sparked or influenced our love of cinema, and for me, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was a seminal moment on the road to reviewing. Being a local theater, Denver West is still one of my frequent haunts, and whenever I see a movie in Auditorium 6, I feel a wave of nostalgia, because when the lights went down on November 16th, and the magical sounds of John Williams Celeste hushed the audience, the course of my life would start to take shape. The first and greatest prerequisite of being a film critic is a love of movies, and until that time, no movie had ever impacted me so strongly. When I walked out of the theater two and a half hours later, I had a new favorite movie, and a newfound appreciation for the art of cinema. The cynics of the world will tell you that I would have loved a Harry Potter movie no matter what, that the film's quality was a non-issue to my forgiving eight-year-old brain, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, as a kid, I was chiefly concerned that the film stay accurate to that novel I held so dear, a concern I have since gravitated very far away from, but accuracy alone was not going to win points in my book. To this day, despite my best efforts, I cannot quite put into words what makes the Harry Potter novels so wonderful. They possess a magical atmosphere that is simply unlike anything else, and when I look back and ponder why I immediately loved the Sorcerer's Stone movie so much, I can only conclude that it was not plot or character accuracy that won me over. Director Christopher Columbus and his team, with a lot of help from maestro John Williams, had captured the indescribable spirit of Rowling's books on screen, and that, above all else, made me giddy. Of course, both the story and the cast were perfect. From a modern critical standpoint, the slavishness to the novel causes severe intermittent lags in pacing, but back then I never wanted the movie to end, pacing be damned. The look, sound, and dialogue of the film were all spot on. Even though everything looked a little different than it did in my head, I still really enjoyed Columbus's take on the visuals, and found even more satisfaction in the characters. From the moment he appears in the cupboard under the stairs, Daniel Radcliffe just is Harry Potter, a trick far more complex than simply giving a skinny kid glasses and a scar. Harry is an incredibly well-developed character in the novel, and as I've already established, I felt like I had some kind of psychic connection to the character when I read the books. I'm sure many other children my age thought the same. So we were always going to be the harshest critics of Harry. Looks alone weren't going to cut it. Thankfully, Radcliffe embodied Harry in mind, body, and spirit, possessing the authentic innocence and senses of wonder and morality that no other child actor could have captured so perfectly. Ten years later, Radcliffe and Harry have both grown, but are still as inseparable as they were all those years ago. Yet, Radcliffe was merely one member of one of the single most impressive casts in film history, a cast that has continued to grow and develop in both numbers and talent throughout the series. Just as Radcliffe was the perfect Harry, Rupert Grant excelled as Ron from the start, and even back then, Emma Watson's take on the character, while not quite matching my interpretation, provided a good, perfectly valid alternative, and she's only gotten better as time has passed. Put together, the trio is undoubtedly one of the all-time best cast teams, their chemistry undeniable from the start. And from legends like Richard Harris, Dame Maggie Smith, and Alan Rickman on down to lesser-known but equally superb thespians such as Robbie Coltrane or Warwick Davis, the adult actors lent a superb sense of gravitas to the proceedings. 
I did not stop talking about the movie for weeks, but then again, neither did anyone else my age. When we came back to school on Monday, it was all anyone could discuss. That was also the day I wrote my first ever film review. My teacher, Mrs. Duran, had us write a short essay every Monday about our weekend. And the subject of mine, of course, was Harry Potter. I imagine I made gratuitous use of words like great and perfect, and I must have enthusiastically exclaimed it was just like the book four or five times. I saw the film in theaters more times than any other movie up to that point, at least five. And along with the release of The Fellowship of the Ring one month later, films had suddenly become one of my driving passions. Movie-related mania did not end in the theater. Having fallen in love with John Williams' music, I bought the soundtrack soon after seeing the movie, a purchase that marked the beginning of my lifelong affair with film scores. It's a great album, and some of the music arguably works better outside the film. Certain cuts sound a tad too big in the context of the movie, such as the chess game, but make for great listening on their own. Cooler still, it would seem that my copy of the soundtrack is now a collector's item, since it has a gold little sticker on the front declaring it the special first edition. That Christmas, I got the Sorcerer's Stone video game for my first ever console, a Nintendo Game Boy Color, a system with enough nostalgia to fill ten articles on its own. I really loved that game, even though it often frustrated me to no end. It's a standard RPG, a sort of ultra-simplistic Final Fantasy, so while I find it easy to play today, it was really difficult as an eight-year-old. I liked the challenge, though, as it gave me extra time to explore Hogwarts in all its 8-bit glory. I still enjoy playing the game today from time to time, as it is both a nostalgic treasure and a decent RPG. The PC version of the game was pretty awful, technically speaking, but I loved playing it then, and I adore revisiting it now. A traditional platformer, it's one of those games that is so bad it's good, with quirky animations, bad voice acting, and hilariously underwhelming level design, plus a totally unfair difficulty spike once the player reaches Voldemort. It also has one of the most memorable endings I have ever seen in a game, if the player collects enough Birdie Bots Every Flavored Beans for Fred and George, they will fill Snape's office with them at the end. This, as you might imagine, does not amuse the potions master. I consider it a great tragedy that Alan Rickman never got to perform this scene himself. In May of 2002, the film arrived on the still-fresh DVD format. As one of the earliest discs my family bought, it changed my perception of how fun the format could be. I watched the movie many times, obviously, but also spent hours exploring Disc 2, which was light on actual bonus features, which would probably annoy me more today, but full of interactive DVD games. Commercials had heavily advertised the presence of deleted scenes on the set, which made me think the movie itself had actually been extended. Alas, I was wrong, we would have to wait another seven years for that version. So I naturally assumed the deleted scenes were bonus features on disc two. But as I started exploring the disc, I found that I was wrong again. Even the packaging advertised the deleted scenes, so where were they? I was not the only one annoyed by this. Every kid who owned the DVD wanted those scenes, and they were nowhere to be found. After a few weeks of searching, I learned online that to find the deleted scenes, you had to play an elaborate series of DVD games. First, you had to select the right bricks in the wall behind the leaky cauldron to get into Diagon Alley, then go to Gringotts and collect money to buy a wand. After that, you travel to Hogwarts, take some classes, and then enter a special series of button commands to reach Fluffy, the three-headed dog. After putting Fluffy to sleep, you go through all the trials guarding the stone, and once you finally find it, you are taken to a menu where the deleted scenes are kept. How, I ask, was any kid supposed to know to do any of that? Sheesh. 
By that time, marketing for the upcoming Chamber of Secrets movie had already begun in earnest, and the cycle of hype I had enjoyed with Sorcerer's Stone repeated itself once again. I was now in fourth grade, a little older, a little wiser, and more excited for Harry Potter than ever before. Once more, the trailers and TV spots hit all the right notes, and when I was not feverishly watching them repeatedly, I continued to fool around on the official Potter website, read stories about the upcoming film and its video game adaptation, and of course, reread the book. But I could not spend all my time being excited for the new movie, since I had recently started a new job that was taking up lots of my time, time I greatly enjoyed spending. During the last months of third grade, Mrs. Duran had suggested I apply to write for the Denver Post's Colorado Kids section, which accepted applications every summer. I was one of the lucky few hired, and the rest, they say, is history. I was not writing movie reviews yet. That role would come along about two years later, but there were plenty of other fun journalistic assignments to spend time on as I counted down the hours to November 15th, 2002, the opening night of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. As with Sorcerer's Stone, we bought our tickets in advance, but the lines had been so gargantuan last time that we decided to arrive at the Denver West Theater far earlier than we had the year before. We still were not early enough. I do not know why, but the lines had doubled in size this time, and despite our punctuality, we were near the very end. Once we finally got into the theater, the only seats left were at the very, very back, and that just would not do. We were in Auditorium 8, one of two huge identical auditoriums at Denver West, and Auditorium 9, its twin, was showing the movie 15 minutes later. So rather than sit in the very back, we snuck into the next screening in Auditorium 9. This too was pretty full, so we had to sit near the front, four or five rows into the main section. This turned out to be a revelatory experience that still influences how I watch movies. Up to that point, I like to sit in the middle or even a little further back, but once I saw Chamber of Secrets up close, I could never go back. Watching Chamber, I was fascinated by my visual immersion in the world of the film, in the ability to allow my eyes to dart around the screen and focus on little details here and there that one would not see if one sat farther back. Only being able to focus on the image as a whole is, after all, what DVD is for. This is a concept I have tested on hundreds of movies since Chamber of Secrets, and it still holds up. In my humble opinion, sitting reasonably close to the screen is the best way to see a movie, and being any further back is a massive waste of time. I would not, of course, have been impressed if the movie had disappointed, but luckily, everything I loved about Sorcerer's Stone returned in Chamber of Secrets, tweaked and improved with better acting effects and a far greater sense of scope, danger, and darkness. The new characters like Dobby the House Elf and Professor Gilderoy Lockhart, played perfectly by Kenneth Branagh, stole the show, while Rowling's frightening thriller of a story turned out to be just as scary on screen as it was in print. There were some surprises in store, like hearing how much Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint's voices had changed since the first film, or seeing Lucius Malfoy try to use the Avada Kedavra killing curse on Harry at the end, resulting in a much darker and perhaps logically flawed version of that scene than what happens in the novel. Still, the biggest surprise and best moment of the film came at the very end, when Hagrid enters the Great Hall, having just returned from Azkaban. After expressing his heartfelt gratitude to Ron, Harry, and Hermione, Harry stands up and begins applauding Hagrid, eventually getting the whole castle to join in. I doubt there was a dry eye in the theater. Looking back on them today, Christopher Columbus's films weren't perfect. I love them dearly, not only from nostalgia, but because they are genuinely good movies. Still, they suffer from an unwavering devotion to the books. Columbus was too afraid to veer away from the novels, resulting in adaptations that are a bit overlong and lacking in the creativity needed to achieve true greatness. 
It's no surprise that Hagrid's triumphant return to Hogwarts, seen only in the film, is the best and most emotionally moving scene of the first two movies, as it was the one scene no audience could have seen coming. Columbus did a very solid job starting the series off on the right foot, and if his films could not reach the heights of their successors, I still find it comforting that he at least ended his tenure with one of the best scenes in the entire series. After Chamber of Secrets, the movie craze wound down. Though I again played and loved the Game Boy Color and PC versions of the game, and enjoyed the eventual DVD release, which thankfully featured the deleted scenes front and center, easy to access, I grew less interested in the movies as summer 2003 approached. I didn't need Substitute Potter anymore, because J.K. Rowling was finally ready to make her return to the world of literature. The long hiatus was over, and the Order of the Phoenix was finally ready to take flight. Thanks for listening. Please uh, remember, if you can, uh, donate to Mermaids UK uh, for Trans Awareness Week. We do have a campaign running right now. Uh, the link is in the show notes, as I've said. Uh, the link, again, in, in case you can't look at the show notes right now, is tiltify.com. That's T-I-L-T-I-F-Y dot com slash at Jonathan Lack. That's my name. Slash Weekly Stuff Podcast. You can click there. It has the campaign, um, places to donate. Um for trans youth and their families in the UK uh, to help counteract the bigotry of the person who created this thing we were talking about today. Uh, thanks again for listening and for your kindness if you're donating. Have a good one.